Hey there, Boyle. How was your weekend? Well, actually, I got a little sick. Oh, really? Sorry to hear that, man. Yeah, Bullets Over Broadway was on TV. I came down with a big old Diane Weist infection. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash contrarianprime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. Right, I am recording for Contrarians Corner. Excellent. Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, and I am joined, as always, and now for the foreseeable future, remotely by my Peruvian counterpart, Julio. Julio, how are you doing on this Monday evening? Uh, I'm I'm safe, safe and sound inside my home, protected from all the craziness out there. All the potential weirdos with scissors for fingers. Yes, <laughs> it's the world split between the weirdos with the scissors or fingers and the weirdos that wear their masks around their chin. Yes, and just have their nose hanging out freely in the breeze. <laughs> yeah, they think they figure it out. They they think that they found the loophole. Anthony Michael Hall in this movie would absolutely be a person that raises a fit about having to wear a mask into like <laughs> a fucking uh, Walmart or something. He would try to get in a fight with a, one of the security guards at HEB. This movie is sort of prophetic in a bad way, and we'll get into that, because I think that Tim Burton was onto something with his depiction of uh, suburban America here, but I also think that, in a way, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. White people are the worst? <laughs> I mean, you watch Kathy Baker there, and... Oh, Yeah. Yeah, there's much Karen to discuss Baker. with her character. <laughs> yes, she is. They're all like the the forefathers or foremothers of the Karen haircut in this movie. That is absolutely <laughs> for sure. And then you have like the one actually good person uh, in the party in Alan Arkin, which I don't even know if there's any good <laughs> people on, the, on any of these sides of these arguments anymore. But if there would, it would be Alan Arkin sitting in his backyard with a TV with a big orange extension cord drinking a bush. I mean, that's. that is the victory in everything right now is being alan arkin so uh we are here today if you couldn't tell by our little uh nods to the movie there and also by the title of the episode we're here to discuss edward scissorhands the 1990 christmas release uh or i guess it didn't come out right it came out the beginning of december so it's still a holiday release uh i remember uh, and it's not something to necessarily remember. A lot of you can see from the posters and the marketing material centered around the snow. So it obviously was a very holiday heavy idea. And there's the 
pivotal part of the movie is the Christmas party. That's the night where everything goes That's down. That's the climax. The third act is, is Christmas. Uh, what do you think it means? How do you take it when somebody, when the studio releases a Christmas movie three weeks before Christmas? Is that a lot of faith in the movie? Because they're like, surely we'll be playing still on Christmas. Or is that not enough faith in the movie thinking we can't go against the other Christmas movies, so let's let's get out of the way and release earlier. My thinking, and also I'm biased for this particular discussion after reading about this movie today because I know they thought it was going to be a success. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> I think uh, if your movie's dropped on Christmas Day, I think um, it's more of the idea of we just got to put it out on that day so someone can go to the theater and watch it. Because <laughs> typically, <clears throat> I want to say Toy Story 2 was released like in uh, November of 1999. The point of the story is that turned into a Christmas movie in the sense of it did its most bank around Christmas. So I think it's all strategic if you release it uh, soon enough or early enough to kind of build the hype towards Christmas. And I think that was the idea here. Um, yeah, I, mean, I remember the Polar Express. Wasn't that a really early release? That's a Christmas movie. I want to say it was like Thanksgiving. <laughs> that sounds about right. Sometimes that comes back to bite you in the ass in the case of uh, Fred Claus, where they released it, you know, uh, the first weekend of November. And by the second weekend of November, no one was talking about it anymore. So you got to pick your spots and uh, picking spots. Tim Burton and the fine people at 20th Century Fox certainly did as uh, this movie quadrupled its uh, budget with its box office return. So I assume, again, if you've been listening to the Summer of Winona so far, you know, kind of have a mixed bag of feelings on this movie. So I'm certainly not a Tim Burton head by any stretch, but Julio, you may know. Do people consider this a Christmas movie? Uh, I wouldn't know. I, I've i been, you know, they consider it a Johnny Depp movie. <laughs> That's really the, <laughs> the prevailing thing. It, I mean, I would say yes, right? It's not, it's not like when they ask if Die Hard is a Christmas movie. No, here this we is, go. <laughs> this has at least 30 minutes of of Christmas in it, and Christmas plays a big part. It feels like Christmas. Yes. Uh, I was just thinking, I'm curious if people, I imagine they do use this in their Christmas rotation. God, when they want to cry? This is just the, <laughs> the They just want to learn that, you know, there's no valor or... Uh, you know, the good guy doesn't really win in the end. That's the story of Christmas. Let's let's go ahead and put this on. Um, okay, so this is, uh, we're trekking along here on the summer of Winona. This brings us to our next stop. If this is your first time listening to us on The Contrarians, we appreciate you listening. If you're uh, joining us once again, uh, we appreciate you coming back. Uh, give us a moment here while we explain our gimmick to our new listeners. Uh, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. It's the expression we like to use. Uh, we find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that's highly rated, uh, often known as certified fresh. Make a case for maybe why it should be taken down a few pegs. Uh, and then conversely, find a movie usually about 30% and below that uh, has one of those nasty green splotches. People say they're rotten and make a case for some of the positive merit in it. Being that Edward Scissorhands is, I believe, 90, yes, 90% on the old RT. Uh, we're going to be making a case for... Maybe why this shouldn't be so warmly regarded as some, I wouldn't even say cult classic, just 90s grunge kid movie. Yeah, but if you want to find out how we really feel, just stick around for the second half of the show, uh, where I, I am 
as curious as probably every single listener we have about how you took this Tim Burton, Johnny Depp went on a rider vehicle uh, because you've been hinting at having some animosity towards the movie in the past few episodes. I will say, as I texted you today, having not seen this in a long, long, long time, it was a lot different than I remembered tonally and presentation wise. So I think it'll lend itself to some interesting discussion. Uh, so typically, uh, at this portion, before we get into breaking down the movie, we usually reference Rotten Tomatoes and, uh, get a few quotes from some reviewers so we can kind of set the table to what the general sentiment was being that the summer of Winona, uh, hashtag Winona virus 2020 hashtag ride or die has, uh, become something of an interactive thing with our podcasting friends in the podcasting community. We actually have uh, some clips that have been sent in to us for uh, some of our, again, podcasting friends to weigh in their thoughts on Edward Scissorhands. So Julio, who sent their thoughts? And uh, we're going to be starting off with the positives, correct? These are people that, that is loved correct. it. Yeah, we have three positives uh, for this half. We'll play three negatives on the second half. Um, the complete opposite of what it was like last episode with the dilemma where nobody wanted to <laughs> chime in. And a damn shame. Yep. It's their loss. Uh, but here, we're going to start with uh, somebody who helped us start the, the entire summer. Ashley from the uh, Rabbit Ears podcast is back uh, with some positive thoughts about Edward Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands is a cult classic that still feels fresh even 30 years after its release. With an all-star cast that includes Alan Arkin with hair, Backstreet Boy Nick Carter's film debut, Johnny Depp and Winona Ryder with orange hair. It combines fairy tale and fish out of water comedy in a way that only 1990 Tim Burton could. Paired with Danny Elfman's score, this movie is magically whimsy with just the right amount of dark. Would you say Winona Ryder is a blonde in this movie? I mean, <laughs> what are the options? Yeah. <laughs> well, because we've seen uh, uh, Blonde Winona. We started the summer <laughs> with Blonde Winona. That was like. That, not platinum blonde, but that was definitely uh, a very definite blonde. This is more of like, you know, they use that term sandy blonde uh, or, you know, the the blonde brown. It, it definitely looks like uh, orange, <laughs> a natural color versus uh, just going for absolute prime hotness in Mr. Deeds. <laughs> uh, well, the praise continues with somebody we haven't heard of in forever. Uh, way back when we talked about uh, Rob Zombie's entire filmography, we had Corey uh, on the show with us. Oh, hell yeah. Greetings, children of the screen. Your friendly neighborhood nerd scum here. So Edward Scissorhands was mandatory viewing for anyone growing up punk rock goth in the 90s through early 2000s like myself. And predictably, I love it. Made in a time before Tim Burton had forgotten that movies were about stories, the film balances its stylized, satirical nature with engaging characterization and earnest emotional arcs. However, it's Winona Ryder's performance as Kim that ties everything together. Though she's introduced a little bit late in the game, with the world thoroughly set up, it's only through her eyes that we're able to truly fall in love with the weird world of Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands. It's an admirable performance in a film that definitely deserves its cult classic status. Thank you for your time. If you'd like to hear my further thoughts on movies, comic books, action figures, and varying aspects of pop culture, then check me out on YouTube. Nerd under dash scum, three exclamation points. Have a good one. Nerd scum, out. 
But if you want to hear him talk about uh, Rob Zombie, you have to look up the Rob Zombie episode that we did a long time ago. Oh, yeah. God, that was way back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Corey flaunted his, uh, his growing up punk cred. I don't have that cred, but uh, I still have opinions. Yeah, I don't either. All right, and we're going to close with somebody who, uh, well, we heard him before, and he was really excited about this episode. He actually, in this clip, pleads uh, for us not to be too harsh on the movie. <laughs> Good day to you, my dear, dear contrarians. How are you both? Here we are. The most anticipated film for me personally on your summer of Winona, Wino Forever Journey, Edward Scissorhands. The iconic Tim Burton film for me. I fucking love this film. I will hear no bad words about this one, my friend. So please, please hold your negativity back on this one if you can. Why do I love this film so much? I've, I've been seeing it since I was like five or six. I don't know. When did it come out? Well, however old I was at that point, that's when I've been watching it since. It's just a beautiful gothic fairy tale. It manages to subvert the absurd, mundane nonsense of suburbia and puts most sane viewers in the place of the outsider, that the misfits, the long black-haired misfit, the Tim Burton uh, symbol, alone atop a castle, and you identify with him. How the hell do you identify with a guy with scissors for hands over every single other person in this movie? Why? Because of Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp, who is absolutely heartbreaking in this. And also Vincent Price is heartbreaking heartbreaking in this beautifully heartbreaking their relationship in the film is so so gorgeous to watch i wish there had been more scenes with the two of them together i think this was vincent price's last film i'm not sure and of course winona is also beautiful innocently beautiful and i'm talking about young winona here not croaky voiced dodgy makeup old winona even though her choice of boyfriend is pretty much biff from back to the future in this so you have to wonder where her head's at she is young she's innocent She's not quite naive, she's slightly naive, but she's just like on the border of becoming that gothic personality that she became in Beetlejuice. She's the opposite side to that character, but she's on the border, and it seems like Edward might just push her over the edge, especially his death, but maybe we shouldn't talk about that, because that's a spoiler alert straight off off the bat. All of it is heartbreakingly beautiful stuff. Their connection, Winona and Edward Scissorhands' connection, is one of the most pure things in all of cinema. The fact that it never snowed until he came down from the castle and he made it snow for her. And you can still catch her dancing in it. Oh my god. And there's plenty of laughs too. I'm not sure which is the funniest moment, but the pincushion waterbed ranks very, very high. So does the electrocuted Edward Scissorhands. That's very, very high. But it's also really scary. It's really unsettling. I remember younger Ben was terrified of moments in this, but older Ben just appreciates the darkness a little more now. Right up to those final stabby moments. It would definitely not get made and get made as a PG now. It would be like 15 for that final stab. Anyway, I can't wait to hear what you guys think. I believe this is Alex's first ever watch. So I will be listening intently. So that was Ben from Filmbusters. Uh, I remember him from the Beetlejuice episode, which was also another one of his favorites. Uh, But he's not right. It's not your first time. It just might as well be. Uh, yes, for the emotions that came away from it, it might as well be. That's a good way of putting it. And uh, Vincent Price, he was very ill when he made this movie, but I did check while uh, we were listening to the clip there. It looks like he had two more credits after this. I can't imagine he had done much. My understanding was this was kind of his last really immersive role. Uh, Parkinson's, I believe, is what he had. 
and his physical state was just deteriorating. But despite how we may feel about the movie, always great to have Vincent Price. Uh, his second appearance. It <laughs> is. Contrarians. <clears throat> All right. So Edward Scissorhands starts off awesomely. If you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know I'm a sucker for um, not only classic film studio signatures, but uh, when you customize them to make them fit in with the theme of your movie. So we get an old-timey 20th Century Fox studio signature, but it is uh, blue and black, and uh, it's a frigid night, and there's snow piling around the letters, right? Yeah, and it starts with the Danny Elfman score that announces that it's a Tim Burton movie. Oh, and- dude, it- my first, well, my first note is qu- uh, about the Fox signature, but my second note is this is definitely a Tim Burton movie. Ten seconds in, dampen, 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 dampen. Yep, that's my first note. Tim Burton is a one-trick pony. This is <laughs> the, the first, the opening, the entire opening sequence. It could be Batman Returns. It could be Beetlejuice. It, well, it could be Beetlejuice. It could be uh, a Corpse Ride. It could be fucking Dumbo. I mean, it's just put him and Danny Elfman together in. It's just they they put each other in autopilot. Is it Dark Shadows? What's the movie that yep. PG thirteen? Okay, with the, the vampire movie where Johnny Depp. Yeah. yeah, the main thing I remember is it's PG thirteen. But there's a part where Helena Bonham Carter gives him a a, a Hummer, and like <laughs> it, I just remember watching them be like, hmm, that's pretty intense for a PG thirteen movie. Uh, so yeah, both on the same page there. It's a Tim Burton movie. It's you know they chose uh, the Tim Burton font when doing the overlay for the the title credits here, uh, size twenty four point five. It looks like they blew it up too, and you know a lot of paper mache shit that he probably made and was like, hey, let's film this from this angle, and uh, Danny Elfman's score unmistakable. It's fitting, Danny Elfman. Uh, Paired up with Tim Burton, just the Batman relationship between the two of them, uh, career long wise, and it definitely they they set a mood, and it's it's you can't mistake it. It's not like this movie started. I'm like, hmm, did Danny Boyle direct this movie? <laughs> no, there it's directed by Burton with score by Elfman. It's just that's the package. You don't know where where one ends and where the other one begins. Yeah, that's how they pitch it to the studio. I imagine in 1991, they went as Mario and Luigi for Halloween, just because, you know, (laughs) you have to have them together. Uh, I did pop for uh, Alan Arkin got the and credit. You know, we spent some time talking about the importance of the and credit in our last episode. So him getting it was definitely nice. He's the Queen Uh, Latifah of this movie. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So then we transitioned to old Winona Ryder and I... It's a startling image, and you know, for how much I, I love and have fawned over movies we do with practical effects, they probably should have just tried to give the CGI a go on this one. I mean, we we were close enough to Terminator Two to know that the technology would have been there. Well, or you could just cast an older person. Why the ages oh, the, of Hollywood? <laughs> the trick from uh, A League of Their Own, where it's an older actress, but they just dub in Gina Davis's voice, so they yeah. could have done that here. Uh, that lady from uh, Titanic. They didn't try to age up Kate Winslet. Kathy Bates. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the actress's name, but you know, you don't have to, especially because she's so young. She's a teenager here, so you could cast anybody. You could cast Kathy Bates, and I would believe it. They were like, "Yeah, sure." She grew up to be Kathy Bates. I do I do love she basically just looks like Freddy Krueger with some like toner on. Like it's the same 
the makeup is just as like crusty and decrepit. <laughs> and then, yeah, I, I don't know if she smoked four packs of Marlboros before like each take because her voice sounds like she's gargling gravel. And despite all this, the main thing that stuck out to me about this scene is like the bed is way too big for her granddaughter that's there. I don't know what the deal is, but it looks it's so comically distracting. It looks like a forced perspective shot or something or like the bed's going to eat this little girl. Uh, So this I did not remember at all. I did not recall that it was the movie is Winona's retelling of the tale. But you did remember that that was Winona. Yes. Okay. It's not that I, we got to the end and your mind was blown when uh, I knew it was old Winona, but like uh, I knew, like I knew old Winona was in it. I just forgot what the circumstances surrounding it were. So uh, her granddaughter asks for a bedtime story, and Winona picks the subject of snow because it's snowing outside. And whatever town they're in, uh, she tells a story about you know. It snows because uh, the inventor invented this man. And then we get the. <laughs> no, we don't even get like the wavy screen. We actually get the Beetlejuice panning shot of like the model of the city. That's that right. Go- yeah. goes up to the mansion. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we go. We go there. Uh, I watched the behind the scenes featurette on the DVD and uh, <laughs> it's just like four minutes. And there was this just brief shot of. Tim Burton's sneakers as he walked in between the model town it completely ruined the illusion for me. <laughs> Did he have like some really sick Nike sneakers or were they like definitely like Kmart Express? It looked like Kmart Express. He he was not the Burton that he is now. He wasn't the fashion plate that he would later become. No. And then, the, you know, there's some shots of him talking and he looks so young and innocent and a hundred percent like Edward Scissorhands <laughs> minus his cars. <laughs> In case you were wondering how personal this project was for him. I was about to say, you see, you know, you see a lot of movies sometimes, uh, almost famous we talked about where the director sees themselves in the, the lead character. It really concerned me about, uh, (laughs) his mental state. Like if this is really how he sees the world in terms of like, he might be colorblind, like with the vibrancy of everything that he sees. And, does he think he has scissors for hands? <laughs> it's it's like that 30 Rock where Kenneth, like, you see what Kenneth's perspective is, and he sees everyone as Muppets. Like, that's basically <laughs> what this was here. Once we get to the end of the movie, it is really concerning uh, as far as his philosophy and his, his point of view about the world, because it's, it's very sad and depressing, but it's just hidden away in this, I guess, fairy tale, like everybody's been calling it. Yeah, I mean... To be fair, like if it's Christmas and it's snowing, it's so magical, you'll put up with a lot of bullshit. So you'll just kind of overlook this whole narrative of the flaws of man. So aside from Winona and her granddaughter, the first character we see is Miss Diane Weist making yet another appearance here on The Contrarians. Uh, Subject of discussion last week, we were talking about The Lost Boys as well. She plays Peg Boggs, who uh, we'll come to find out is the uh, mother of Winona's character in this movie. She's a door-to-door saleswoman, uh, sells Avion makeup. That was definitely a thing of that time. Uh, I was looking at it, and and I couldn't have told you that that's something that doesn't happen anymore. Is it is it just like an extinct species, the the Avon salesman and or saleswoman? Does it all happen online now? Or I would imagine it's also a huge difference as it's a bit, definitely more of a small town thing. And obviously we live in the city. 
so I I'm sure there's places like um, I don't know Tacoma or Paducah, <laughs> Kentucky, where these things still happen. Uh, but the gall. The gall of Peg showing up here not wearing a mask during this fucking pandemic here. <laughs> uh, to be fair, like we said, Anthony Michael Hall, and there's a lot of the townspeople that are so... Uh, I would venture to say a lot of these blue haireds that gossip about Peg and Edward uh, definitely listen to InfoWars. Like, I'm surprised there's not a scene where they have, like, Fox News on in the background. So... She's going door to door. She it's a small, tight knit community. It's uh, a lot of gossip, a lot of uh, uh, single women that live there and like to get together and talk about what's going on in the town. There's also a lot of uh, families. It seems it's almost Pleasantville-esque, I think, in many ways. I think there's a little bit more color to it than Pleasantville, but it definitely seems like a, a tight knit community where everyone knows everyone. One of the mainstays of the community is Miss Kathy Baker, who plays Joyce, who um is i don't know floozies she's horny i don't know if floozy is the right word but um yeah because i I would think floozy but even that i mean i don't know there's there's no evidence in the movie that she's actually getting around she just seems like she's really well yeah she's horny but she never gets it she's also very cunning yeah, uh, I, I guess the town is too small and, and her reputation precedes her, so nobody wants to go there. So our first introduction to her is she's just trying to hit on this uh, uh, worker who's there to fix her um, dishwasher. And she's very uh, overt with her uh, advances towards him. And that's like uh, Diane Wee shows up and tries to sell her. She's like, there's a car in the driveway. I'm busy. Go away. Uh, did you catch who the dishwasher repairman was? No. Who is it? Doing like inception levels of shit here in the summer of Winona. Stephen Brill, who would go on to direct Mr. Deeds. <laughs> How would I know that? Because <laughs> I made I such know? a big deal about it. Because he, <laughs> he, uh, he also wrote Ready to Rumble. So Right, but I don't, I don't know what he looks like. <laughs> so. I think I explained it. Well, yeah. I like the wedding singer a lot more than you. He has a, a, not a cameo. He's, I wouldn't call him cameo worthy, but (laughs) anyway, the summer Winona intertwining here in wild, wacky ways. Uh, So Diane Weiss is struck out for the day. She can't sell anything. Uh, So in like the dumbest reveal shot, she's like on this street and then it's like, she tilts her rear view mirror and then she's like, oh yeah, there is that massive haunted mansion on the hill at the end of the street. It's like, uh, you would think it's like the sun, like you just wake up and see it every day there, but it's like she forgot that it existed or maybe she didn't even know. Cause when she's like walking through the garden, she's acting like she didn't even know that existed. Well, maybe she's never gone that far. Uh, I don't know. I mean, th- this movie lost me pretty like- early on. The beach on the Truman Show. It's just like the big painting. <laughs> they told her they had already uh, subconsciously programmed never to go past that gate. But this That's time right. she just broke through the programming. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, anything that happens from this point forward in the movie, I I understand that uh, that Burton and the screenwriter, is it Carolyn Thompson, I think? Um, I understand that the idea is, look... This is you're not supposed to take this seriously as a, as a story that's happening in the real world. The poster is Johnny Depp with scissor hands, so just just go with it. You're supposed to go with it, and I think a lot of it's just gonna depend on whether you buy Tim Burton's bullshit, and by that I mean his his visual style. 
mm-hmm. you know, from the moment that she walks through those gates, that's it. That's that's the test. Are you gonna go with the movie, <laughs> or are you gonna start questioning why she thinks that breaking and entering is okay? There's no way that that is condoned by uh, Avon <laughs> and, and the leadership. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's not in the manual that you know if you run out of all resources, break and enter into a haunted mansion at the end of the block. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, to your point, you know, Lenny Kravitz aped his entire career from Tim Burton when he asked, are you going to go my way? Because Tim Burton (laughs) doesn't give you a choice here and he reels you in. So of course we wander into this haunted mansion and uh, Diane Weist is looking around. There's a lot of really nice sculptures and things there. And she eventually stumbles upon our titular character, Mr. Edward Scissorhands. And it's like, Oh, hi, are you okay? Um, (laughs) Asks him to put the knives down. She sees that they're, you know, mended to his, his being. Um, I mean, this is, this wasn't our introduction to Johnny Depp by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, obviously we had that with uh, nightmare on Elm street, but here, I think this is Johnny Depp kicking down the door or I guess he's so eccentric. It'd be like one of those, uh, sliding paper doors in like a Japanese hotel. (laughs) And he pronounces to the world I'm here because the way he comes almost not even waddling more of just these very tepid steps and his, the voice, the tone of it all. I mean, this is, this is what we would come to think of with Johnny Depp and Tim Burton. So it's hard not to view this as almost a caricature. That is exactly what I was going to say. I think that it's just impossible. Uh, it may not be fair to the movie, but at this point it's impossible to separate just this performance with our knowledge of what's going to happen to Johnny Depp and Tim Burton 20 years down the line, right? This is this is a moment where we could have stopped it early enough before we mm-hmm. got to Jack Sparrow and uh, Willy Wonka and <laughs> <laughs> before, before Depp just got out of control. If you told him, hey, you know what, tone it down or hey, let's recast this character. Uh, how many more Donnie Brascos would we have gotten? And Johnny Depp is just an actor instead of uh, uh, somebody who's just constantly playing caricatures. So it's hard not to resent Edward Scissorhands just for <laughs> for what we know of the future. So she basically treats this man that's wielding 10 instruments of death like a dog. And she's like, hey, you can just come home with me. It's all right. And naturally, because, I mean, look at the dude. He's <laughs> a, a creation of an evil inventor and has scissors for hands. So naturally, the townspeople are going to start to gossip about him and they... They wonder, uh, congregate around Peg's house and try to get a look at him, see what's going on. And he's trying to, you know, he, this is his first time. It's like bringing a stray dog at home. Hijinks are going to ensue. So he, uh, I think he sees a mirror for the first time and he tries on these clothes and he's having a hard time doing it. And it's basically just like this long comedic set piece. And that's where he pokes the hole in the waterbed, uh, yeah. the initial one, and covers it up with a pillow. I, I was getting minor anxiety. In it just in the worst possible way because it's it's bullshit anxiety. You know, there's nothing. It's a, I'm watching a movie about uh, Johnny Depp with scissor hands, but the amount of uh, in quotation marks physical comedy that is devoted to him, uh, just him and his hands and him not being able to pull his pants up or him not being able to just do basic things, just knowing that this was gonna go on for ninety minutes 
it was just weighing on me as I was watching it. I was like, how many more of these things I'm going to have to put up with? Because clearly, Tim Burton thinks they're really funny. Yeah, this seems like it would be like the trailer would have clips of these set to like hot-blooded by Foreigner or something. It, it's, <laughs> it doesn't seem like what you come to think of as this, you know, romantic uh, love masterpiece that so many people try to build it up. It looks like something that would be straight to Netflix and Happy Madison would be the producers on it. Lots of close-ups of uh, Kathy Baker just looking at him, licking her lips. Yes, while yeah. Hot for Teacher plays in the background. <laughs> yes. Uh, the the comparison to, to bringing a, a stray dog, I think it's apt, but it also doesn't really compute because even if you're bringing a stray dog home, you consult with your family. And uh, she just brought him in. I mean, I, I thought, because I, I haven't seen this movie in a long time, I thought she was a single mom. I didn't realize that she was married until she pointed out in the pictures. So I was like, well, she should have at least called uh, Alan Arkin, <laughs> asked him, hey, is it okay if I bring this this creature into our home, <laughs> give him the guest room? You can tell just by his initial response to it that he doesn't really get a say in much. It's like <laughs> she always is getting new furniture shit without consoling him. So he, when he sees Edward for the first time, he just is kind of like, oh, well, of course this would be here. Why not? <laughs> it's the next step. <laughs> it's, it's only, you know, it's what makes sense. But um, so yeah, the previously mentioned Alan Arkin who plays Bob uh, meets Edward as well as their son, Kevin, uh, Nick Zelinsky himself. He plays Rick Moranis' son in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which I immediately recognized him because I wore that VHS out as a kid. Um, and it leads them to uh, – is this is the dinner scene, right? The initial dinner scene where he kind of meets the family for the first time because Winona's not in the picture yet. So it's him with Peg, Bob, and Kevin. Yeah, they're making us wait for Winona. Oh, this is the really – this. yeah, this is what you're it's talking about with like the, the comedy just dragging on and not working. He – it's like a fucking six minute scene of him trying to eat a pea. Yep. And it's it like the he finally figures it out later in the movie with like the steak, but he just can use his hand like a fucking <laughs> fork. Like I don't understand where the disconnect is. Because that wouldn't be funny, Alex. Uh but yeah. that's that's through the entire movie, there's this constant uh, dissonance between how talented he can be with those hands and how clumsy he can be with those hands. You can't have it both ways. Either he's a genius because he's spent all this time by himself in these hands and he knows how to handle them, or he is just really clumsy with them, acting as if he he's not used to them. But mm. really, depending on what uh, what Tim Burton needs him to to be, what he needs the story to to do, uh, it just it's like a switch. You know, sometimes he's just they're scissor hands, but they're just obstacles, really. And sometimes they're just these uh, magic ones that can create wonders. Uh, so need to correct myself real quick. I was calling him Bob. It's Bill Boggs is their last name. That's where I was getting the, the B.O. from. Yeah. Bob Boggs. Uh, Alan Arkin. Bill. Full head of hair. Luxurious. So Edward is staying with the Boggses and he's just kind of perusing around, helping them where he can around the house. Come to find out, he figures out he can use his hands to make tapestries and uh, do some landscaping work. And that he does. He, I think his first one is a dinosaur. And then he just goes over to this other shrub and makes a, uh, a model of the Boggs family from it. So uh, not tapestries, topiaries, excuse me. So he has an eye and an affinity for landscaping. And this is like, this is one of my favorite parts of, 
I think um, like Alan Arkin's trying to do yard work, but then he sees what Edward's doing. So he just gives up. And that's when he starts watching the game and just drinking in his yard. And he's like, yeah, look at you go, Ed, go for it. He's figured out that this guy could be. It's not his movie. <laughs> it's not his movie. And this guy can make his life a lot easier. He just got a tool because uh, the the kid, the son, starts washing uh, Edward's uh, scissor hands with water. And Alan Arkin goes like, no, 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 you need to put oil on them. <laughs> you don't want him to rust. Oh, uh, that, yeah. That's that a terrible tells you where his head's at, yeah. Uh, you know, Alan Arkin might be the most honest person in this movie. Um, he's no angel, but I don't think that he's... I think that he's flawed, but he's not malicious. Uh, he's just very honest about his, his worldview. In this case, he's all about embracing the American dream and being a capitalist. And he just asks... You know, later down in the movie, he, he seems to be pushing Edward towards being an independent person that can provide for himself. And uh, But even as early as in this sequence, you can see that out of everybody in the movie, he's the one that's actively trying to find a place for Johnny Depp in this world. <laughs> just make yeah. him useful. He's trying to teach him how to just, like, exist amongst normal people. <laughs> right. Diane Wist has no interest in doing that. She just wants somebody to pet and to put makeup on. And, like, yeah, this is someone she can show off to do party shit. She is uh, the Gore Fines, and um, Edward Scissorhands is her Lewin Davis. She just wants someone <laughs> that she can show off to her friends at, you know, dinner parties and shit. Which is what she does, because she plans a barbecue and just basically shows off what he can do to all the the locals, the uh, the blue haireds, as well as the uh, gentlemen of the town. And basically, they all treat him like like you would an alien. Like if it's like, hey, look at this thing I got. He's like a dog. It's like, hey, look at look at this new thing we got. It can do all this shit. Yeah. Uh, but they 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 find out he can do the. Uh, topiaries and things like that so they they basically start i guess blocking off time or renting him from diane weist for free though because alan arkin who again is the one that's the most practical here he he makes a point that he's just doing this work for free nobody's paying him uh diane weist goes oh well he gets cookies from some of them but that's not the same that's not that's not the way america works damn it yeah alan arkin says something like that about you cannot buy essential life needs with cookies <laughs> as he's got, you know, his seventh beer of the evening. Yeah. But really, I mean, I just, I, I was just thinking, okay, Tim Burton, tell me how you feel about suburban America. Don't, don't be shy. Don't pull your punches because the depiction here, all an arc aside, the depiction of every single member of this community is just so damning because they're all two-faced and shallow and... There's really nothing to them. Ben, on his clip, he was like, oh, isn't it amazing that you identify with Johnny Depp, the guy with scissors for hands? Well, not really, because who else am I going to identify with? Everybody else in this town is an asshole. So <laughs> it's just by default. And there's no character flushed out enough for me to really k give a shit about. It's right. Just, again, Tim Burton asked, are you going to go my way? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Alan Arkin, you're right, though. I, I think I caught what you were getting onto there. I think he is the most relatable for any adult watching the movie because he's the one that's like is any motherfucker is anyone paying attention <laughs> to what's going on here but then of course diane weiss is so motherly and sweet that she's just like she tells you the audience oh don't worry about him he gets that way sometimes <laughs> and then we just have to forget about it so at this point the entire neighborhood is just smitten with uh ed and the idea of him there's ed there's edward there's eddie He's basically become a local celebrity. 
Uh, there's one crazy religious zealot that is not a fan, said he was sent from hell. And she kind of reappears throughout the movie just to kind of weigh in, you know, like most religious zealots do. Just remind you, hey, I'm still here. You're all going to hell. Every Sunday, she just shows up. Uh, yeah. I, I, I know it's only like 100 minutes, but it just, even for the 90s, I think the trope of the the religious zealot is pretty tired. I would have liked to see, just add some variety. What if the religious person was the one that actually got Edward? The one that would, maybe, she doesn't have to embrace him, but she can at least be less fake than everybody else. Yeah. During this and this time of embrace and Edward making friends is when we get our first of several flashbacks to uh, the inventor, his creator, who we find out at this point in time was Vincent Price, who we see that uh, owned the mansion and made, they had like a a line, a factory <laughs> line that made cookies. This is and the most impractical thing ever. <laughs> it was, yeah. I mean, it's not that hard to make cookies. Just, I think he kind of made the task way more difficult than needed to. But he has an assembly line for cookies and all this other gobbledygook around. And uh, when we get our first shot of Edward, it's just his torso. So he was like a work in progress still. And I think he was teaching him how to talk. And I think he tells him a joke and starts to tell him how to laugh. And <laughs> it's it's pretty off putting. Yeah. Well. Again, I understand that I'm not supposed to think about this, but it's impossible not to think about it. The The whole point, the whole reason why he had scissors for hands is because Vincent Price died before he finished him, right? He didn't get around to giving him the hands. Uh, but Why were the scissors the first option? Exactly. Why did he have the scissors in the first place? <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't he just have stumps instead of scissors? I was about to say. It's, like wooden pegs or some shit. Something yeah. that like he was out of supplies for that day. <laughs> like the idea that Vincent Price was out of he's like, mm, I don't have any human hands. Oh, I do have these giant claws made of scissor parts. <laughs> he was a big X-Men fan. Back in the nineties, you know, that was the heyday of Wolverine in the comics. So maybe he, he just went for that. Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't get it. I it's also like he has to know. There's no way that Vincent Price, who at least seems to be genius enough to create all this shit, to create life, <laughs> right? Uh, and somehow he doesn't acknowledge that he's pretty old and he could he could not be here tomorrow. So he needs to speed up. You know, it's like less reading poetry at night and more just making sure that the guy is at least functional. Put all his pieces there. He could have like built himself an iron lung or something that could have helped sustain his living ability <laughs> though to be fair he is an old man in this movie but the, it does definitely seem like his death it, it was uh, a surprise to everybody so we go from uh getting to see vincent price for the first time to our antagonist being introduced in the form of jim anthony michael hall who man they hit the nail on the head with this just in terms of so punchable i mean definitely <laughs> unlikable guy but he used to not be, right? I mean, did you know him from The Breakfast Club before before you knew him no. as Anthony Michael Hall? I didn't see The Breakfast Club till later in life, in my teens, probably. Um, no, but yeah, I mean, I, I say that. He's just very punchable here. I think I, that's more of a compliment to his portrayal of Jim and his performance. But um, not to say he definitely doesn't steal the spotlight here because the, the woman of the hour, uh, Miss Winona Ryder, Kim, appears in the movie for the first time. And despite second billing, I think we're probably 40 minutes into the movie before she actually appears. Not counting her, uh, her, uh, J Edgar makeup at the very opening. Not, yeah. 
She's not getting paid by the hour. She's in and out. So she shows up. We get another, you know, kind of comedic piece of Edward has been sleeping in her bed. She comes back late at night. He doesn't know what to do. She sees him. She screams. He pokes a bunch of holes in the waterbed. Uh, it leads to more of this revelation that Alan Arkin is a functional alcoholic in the movie <laughs> as he takes uh, Edward down to the the really cool bar he has built in his basement. And um, they share a few drinks of what he says is lemonade. I don't know. It looks like scotch or something. So come come over, Edward. Let's have a really uh, awkward, inappropriate conversation about my teenage daughter. Because that's when Alan Arkin goes, I don't know what happens to them. They start the glands. <laughs> they start changing. Yeah, very weird. And Edward's like glands, and I don't think <laughs> Alan Arkin's processing. This guy's like a computer. You have to teach it things to make it understand. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I guess that was our meet cute. But then uh, Peg's like, "Hey, let's go have a formal introduction." And at that point, Edward's just fucking shit faced and makes a weird gurgling noise and then collapses. It's hilarious. <laughs> uh, it makes you wonder about the the just how his he works as an organism. So he can't get drunk apparently, mm-hmm. but he's a robot. So I mean, we saw him when he was just like a metal skeleton. So he is designed to process food and process alcohol and react to it the way that a human would. You're also dealing with a bunch of people that hadn't once thought to just put like a case over his hands, <laughs> like. <laughs> Yeah, but this, this I just mean, get like you know, a rifle bag or something. It's just such a complex amount of work to put into him before you put the hands on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? it, yeah, it's so weird. And for like the amount of technology that would be needed to create a human, like the the hands look like shit. Like the scissors <laughs> aren't like you'd expect them to be like at you mentioned Wolverine. They should have been like you'd expect an evil scientist to have adamantium or, you know, <laughs> some unobtainium or something to craft these after. But I don't know. Never taught him how to use them either. That's the worst part. Like he was alive. He'd like taught him how to laugh, but he didn't tell him how to not cut his face with his own hands. God, poor Edward. So he is a neighborhood sensation. He's going around doing uh, plants. It come to discover he can also uh, groom dogs so everyone's dog is getting a nice good summer haircut and then eventually turns that into trying it on human hair who is it kathy baker yep. who gets the first haircut and basically acts like she's sitting on a symbian the whole time that he's doing it <laughs> it was uh it was as sexy if not more sexy than the, the haircut travolta gets in phenomenon I don't know about that because, like, with that you get the shaving too, so you get like the 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 rich lather, and then you get the close up of the razor being whisked in the bowl of water. <laughs> well, here you get the close up of uh, Kathy Baker's feet because she crosses her feet just at the <laughs> at the point of the most uh, ecstasies, I guess. And a young Tarantino turned to whoever was sitting next to him in the theater and goes, "Hey, man, I like that. I like that a lot, man." Uh, so again, the religious zealot is there. Uh, to tell people to be weary. But aside from her, the only people that are really not a fan uh, are Kim and Jim. Jim straight out just thinks he's a freak uh, and really antagonizes him, almost mocks him every chance he gets to his face. And then Kim is still just, uh, she doesn't really understand. She's trying to understand him and what he's all about. Uh, In her defense, their first encounter was pretty odd. He's uh, on whatever the version of Maury is in the town they're in, he's in a talk show and subtext and subtlety is not Tim Burton's strong suit because like, this is the part where like they're, Oh, questions from the audience. Uh-huh. 
And they ask, like, do you want to get your scissor hands removed? He's like, yes, I'd like that. And then one woman's like, but then you wouldn't be different. You wouldn't be special. <laughs> no one would pay attention to you. And then Diane Weist comes in for the save. And it's like, he'll oh, always the, be special. The Yeah. The reason kids are the way they are today. The the <laughs> participation trophy speech she comes in with. Again, it, it just drives me crazy. The internal logic of this movie. Because they somehow the priority. Multiple times during the movie, somebody says, hey, I know a doctor that can probably help you with this. And uh, even if those are just things that people are saying and not really meaning, you would think that priority number one for Diane Weiss and her family would be to get the hands under control somehow. Because, yes, he can do haircuts and whatever, but it's still there a danger. But her priority is to cover his scars, which to me seems, you know, that's not as important. Nobody cares about the scars. She should be working on the hands. And then when you get to this scene with the with the TV audience and whatever, it's almost like the movie's trying to tell you through Diane Weist that, well, no, it's just that if you take away his, his sister hands, you take away what makes him special. When you put that in the in the perspective of oh Edward Scissorhands is supposed to be Tim Burton, what is Tim Burton saying about himself exactly? What are what are his Scissorhands in 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 the real world? <laughs> What's the equivalent? Are, are the Scissorhands his desire to make movies? And so are we supposed to read it as you know? Are they his movies? Dark and brooding, <laughs> but he knows if they went away, no one would care about him. Right. This is like you know his parents saying you know forget about making movies, be sensible. Get those scissor hands replaced, and you can be just like the rest of us. And his uh, topiary is Batman. He's like, but I made this. Look at it. Well, you have the stages, right? So the topiary would be actually Beetlejuice, and then okay. the the haircuts would be Batman. And okay. then something else is just his fall from grace. Something else is his murder of uh, Anthony Michael Hall. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of what would be his uh, getting arrested for breaking and entering. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sleepy um, Hollow, probably. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, well, I don't like Batman Returns, so you could almost say that. God. That ba- Batman Returns is like the the getting caught breaking and entering because he went under like with pretenses of like, this will go fine. This will be good. <laughs> and then like him trying to open the door is just that scene where Michelle Pfeiffer's licking her arm and giving herself a bath. <laughs> He's like, I don't know how to get out of here. <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> Universal goes like, did you know what you were doing? And he's like, no, I knew. Then why did you do it? Because you told me to. <laughs> <laughs> no, killing Anthony Michael Hall is uh, Planet of the Apes. That's, yes, there you go. <laughs> that POV shot of what Anthony Michael Hall sees when he gets stabbed, that's just like Tim Burton just hate-fucking the audience with uh, Planet of the Apes. <laughs> Him throwing us out the balcony is the reveal that Abraham Lincoln was an ape. God. <laughs> I go long periods of time in my life forgetting that movie exists. And then I remember the ending and just like I, I could be anywhere. And I just start shaking my head. <laughs> Idiot. Uh, so things continue. He's, you know, kind of uh, bounced around the community, helping out some. Joyce, again, uh, Kathy Baker, just blasting out of her pants, watching this guy in action. And. <clears throat> they're going to help him set up a beauty salon or she's wanting to help set up a beauty salon and uh, takes Edward for a tour and then takes him into the back room and lights up a cigarette, puts on some sensual tunes, sits him down. And it looks like a fucking like operation room. Uh, 
and he's put on like a gurney of sorts. But anyway, point being, the words these people say to him, it's not really sure he clearly understands what they're saying. So I don't, I understand sex is the most primal thing humans can do, but I still don't really think that he was very cognizant of what she was trying to do. But she starts getting more and more revealing, and obviously this excites him to a certain degree, but it Uh also freaks him out. See yeah. that, but that's the thing. I, I really, I actually paused the movie here because I needed to to straighten my thoughts about what's going on. And of course, the, the, the simple answer is, it goes on. I mean, what's going on is that Tim Burton doesn't care about consistency and internal logic and whatever, right? Because he, he, my my big question was, can he? Does he have a libido? Does he get aroused? Because he seems to. By now, we've established that he has the hots for Winona Ryder. He, you know, because when he was at the at the Maury equivalent, he does, speaking of not being subtle, he has a moment where he, somebody from the audience asks him if he has a girlfriend and, uh, and he stares straight into the camera and his love for Winona Ryder travels through, <laughs> through the, the airwaves and, you know, because she's watching from home and he's like, uh, maybe there's somebody. Uh, so does he like her because he finds her attractive? Is that part of his programming? Is that part of recognizing having feelings based on attraction because at this point it can't be that he likes her based on her personality because this is not you know ben said it this is not lydia from beetlejuice this is mm-hmm. uh tim burton downgrading when our writer to a character that's just basically just your standard blonde teenager with a bad boyfriend so there's nothing there for, i imagine for him for edward to connect, it's not even like she's nice to him, or like no. she doesn't even interact with him at all. You know, if she's gonna, if he's gonna have a crush on somebody, uh, you think it'd be Diane Weist. So, so we have to understand. My assumption is that he thinks she's hot, and I, I yeah, I mean that makes sense. We all do. So that means that he he can process that kind of stimuli, and so when Kathy Baker has him on this on this room and she starts undressing and he looks like he's excited when she starts taking her clothes off he he has a reaction so that reaction to me is you know it's sex driven it has to do with sex he may not know that that's what it's called but he's gotta have you know he has to be feeling something so all this to say that it kind of it builds up to that and then it's completely dropped the movie never further explores (laughs) how edward handle sexual impulses uh, they make a, a kind of a throwaway joke about kathy baker trying to fuck him and and then later in the movie she accuses him of trying to rape her but that's it as far as the mystery of what goes on in edward scissorhands loins i mean that's just we're left hanging yeah and you breezed past that even like you spent more time focusing on that than the movie did the part where like he's accused of raping her at one point which <laughs> It's just that's just really dark. It's come. It comes later, but that's such a weird, dark turn. Real talk, Contrarian's Corner, what have you? Obviously, the term and the act of rape has never been a situation to take lightly. Uh, but I do think the idea of being able to have a throwaway line like that would have been way more acceptable at the time. But again, we're watching this through twenty twenty lenses, so it's kind of startling to say the least. That it's just kind of it's a it's a word that's used as a throwaway, whereas like today that yeah. Not to say it was okay that it could have been used as a throwaway term at that point in time, but... Uh, it, it definitely... Well, I don't know how it felt back in the 90s. Uh, and this is just more real talk, I guess. But it really it really makes the Kathy Baker character probably, I would think, more despicable than, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> than the movie intended when yes. she does that. I 100% concur with that. But um, 
<clears throat> so he wonders, scurries away from this encounter with Kathy Baker. I mean, yeah, I don't, I'm not going to discriminate one way or the other. She was an attractive woman, but also he's a confused young man. It's just a, there was no winners in this situation. And well, knows, you're saying though, it's that you would have gone for it. Uh, I mean, if it was me, yes. I'm not talking about if like I was Edward Scissorhands because I wouldn't. <laughs> God, I'm a very handsy gentleman when a, a woman and I get intimate. I wouldn't want to cut anybody up or anything like that. But yeah, Kathy B- Baker, God bless. And so he scurries away to uh, meet up with the uh, Boggs family at a local diner. I mean, this is just like small town America. We keep talking about it. It's like, imagine like this is where the Sandlot took place in a different universe. Uh, because he walks in and they're just eating, I think, hamburgers or chicken fried steak, what whatever you eat at the local diner. And he explains, hey, we went and I got a tour of this beauty salon. You can have a, a desk up front where you sell all your makeup. And then doesn't he say like, oh, and then she uh, took Joyce took me in the back and then she took off all her clothes. <laughs> and then everyone just kind of stops and looks except for Alan Arkin because he's in that distant place in his mind where he's just like you got it ed way to go uh, alan arkin is uh you know once again going back to the american dream he's uh he's just interested in getting uh edward out of his house i guess and just so he can get his own place he's like you can go to the bank and you know get a loan and just be a sales that's the first thing he goes to like he doesn't give a shit he's like i you got into this really sticky situation with this woman that could potentially be disastrous and he's just like Whatever. You're going to order food? We got to get out of here. Uh, so he's turned down money at the bank. I don't know why Diane Weist or anyone thought that a, a, a human that Vincent Price created was going to get like this $20,000 bank loan. Uh, the entitlement. The entitlement of the suburban middle class. Oh, and at least the credit to Burton here in the writing of like... Uh, I think it's Caroline Thompson, right? Caroline Thompson, yes. Uh I just appreciate that the banker, they didn't have him like try to be sympathetic. He just basically tells them he doesn't have a social security number, no <laughs> bank account, doesn't have a job. Like, what the fuck do you expect me to do? Give him monopoly money. So he's turned down and it's kind of dropped at this point. Like this plot, this idea that he's going to get money and start a beauty salon is just kind of dropped. Because well, I guess Tim Burton got bored and moved on to the next thing. Pretty much. He just said, okay, well, now it's time for him to fall from grace. And now the movie kind of laser focuses on him not being likable anymore as far as the town is concerned. Because that's when, every, you know, he gets into the robbery and then everybody turns on him. Like on a dime. <laughs> there's no uh, transition. Uh, there's no smooth transition where he slowly falls from grace. It's just everything that happens from here on is just... Edward sucks. It's America, pretty much. Hey, there's this new thing, and we think it's uh, cholesterol. Hey, we think this is great. It's awesome. Let's eat as much bacon as we can and celebrate it. And then you find out it does something bad, and it's just like, fuck this. No bacon ever again. We can't do anything. Yeah, the rest of the movie is uh, somebody finding an old tweet from uh, Edward Scissorhands, and they just like <laughs> <laughs> just push him as far as it goes. They uncovered a, a podcast he did before he was famous where he said something mildly problematic. And he's not what we thought he was. No, it's just like a picture of him giving Trump a haircut or something. And they're like, <laughs> see? He's doing that white power symbol with his scissors <laughs> in like some picture that was online. <laughs> Let's get him. So Kim and Jim, it's discovered quickly in just kind of a moment of transition that uh, one of his scissor blades can be used to pick a lock. So I, I can't. Jim, why does he want to set him up? No, he, this is... 
so he wants to, in the dumbest plan ever, establish that he's he's rich or his parents are rich, and so he wants Edward to help him break into his own house, I guess, into his father's safe room or whatever, and then help him steal everything so he can sell it and have money of his own. I guess that's the idea. He's telling Winona Ryder, he'll do it if you ask him, because everybody here except you has realized that he has a crush on you. <laughs> and uh, and don't you want your own van? Don't you want us to have our own van with a mattress in there? This guy's a piece of work. And- oh, he's so gross. That part where he like tells uh, Edward, he's like, hey, watch the door and holler if Peg comes up. Then he does that. <laughs> yes. and it's like, ew. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that Ben... As much as he loves this movie, at least he called this out in the in his clip, which is that he's what's going on with Winona Ryder's taste in men in in her movies. I mean, this is just the latest in a long line of shitty boyfriends that she's had <laughs> throughout the summer of Winona. It hits pretty hard when you're doing these movies every week, right? Like Adam Sandler, uh, <laughs> fucking Ethan Hawke, <laughs> Ethan Hawke, scumbag, dirtbag in that movie, Dracula, the, a Dracula. Uh, <laughs> Fucking um, shit! Channing Why Tatum. am I blanking on his name? Channing Tatum's dumbass. Yeah, <laughs> she uh, she needs to up her game. Hopefully, we'll get a few bounce backs for her here as we can move along. Uh, but yeah, he's he's terrible. I just don't I don't understand why she is with him. So, but his plan is to get him in the house. Then just, he eventually the plan just becomes to like get him right. Doesn't he kind of bail on the plan? I mean, I don't know. It could be the movie doesn't make it clear, but I thought that it was an accident. That basically he breaks into the room. But oh he yeah, because he didn't alarm. expect. He yeah. thought the alarm was deactivated, right? And so, but then he just freaks out and he uh, he justifies his actions to Winona when he's like, "If it would have been me, he would have pressed charges. We had to sacrifice somebody, type thing." Right? Because they, yeah, they take off. They leave him behind. Winona wants him to go back for him and explain. He's just like, "If we go back and we tell the police that it's your house, then well, they're not gonna arrest you for." breaking into your own house and he's like no my dad will press charges because i guess his dad is as much of an asshole as he is i was about to say we another piece of the puzzle unfolds as to why (laughs) anthony michael hall is a very violent drunken teenager so this alarm goes off this plan goes awry and you know edward scissorhands i i did fucking laugh that his like uh his like incognito outfit is just basically what William Costigan wears when he's undercover in The Departed. <laughs> he's just got like that track jacket and the ball cap on tucked over really tight. So when he got arrested, you know what I immediately noticed? Um, and this is something just normal people would not notice, but people like you and I who have worked in the movie theater industry for, God, collectively over 20 years. When they put the handcuffs on him, uh-huh. I guarantee that was a real change because it's one of those shots that lingers so long. Like, and that's like a pivotal thing for real changes is because there, you know, you'll get a mm-hmm. few frames cut off here and there. So you have to have these shots to transition from real to real that remain static for about five seconds, just so you can kind of have some wiggle room. So for those of you who watch movies sometimes and wonder why, especially older movies, there's these shots that linger for about five to six seconds that seem unnecessary. That's almost assuredly when there would have been a real change in the film. So little uh, trivia for you there. It's the kind of thing that uh, Tim Burton and his editor thought about for, you know, very meticulously. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the all the effort that they did not give to the story, the internal logic of the story, they gave <laughs> to the transition between reels. <laughs> um, to uh, me, the most memorable thing in this sequence is that we finally get a black character. There's a... <laughs> the police chief. The no police less. chief. The, the police, they just incredibly sympathetic and empathetic <laughs> police officer that shows up in this 
because I, I don't think that that's maybe in in small town America that's how it works where he just kind of sticks around for the rest of the movie he kind of follows uh the perp <laughs> he, he makes sure this guy he arrested for armed robbery i guess technically they could get him for with his knife hands he's just like you know what this seems like a good kid i'm gonna tail him and just make sure he you know he flies a straight and narrow he's he's truly concerned i mean it's not even again going back to he like tells him like i couldn't sleep it all night thinking <laughs> yeah. about you he asks like the other i guess it's uh Edward's lawyer or or the the court doctor. Oh no, he's like, Doc, is he gonna be okay? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The doc like runs down, he's like, he has no grasp on reality, <laughs> but is he gonna be okay? Oh yeah, he'll be fine. <laughs> he's living with Diane Weast. He'll he'll be fine. They're good people. So I I'm curious uh, to get the discussion about the police chief in the real talk in the second portion of the podcast. Can't really go into too much of my thoughts of it and it'd be funny. So while he's stewing in the pen, as he's uh, in the in the <laughs> drunk tank, the pretty pen. much, <laughs> and when he sees uh, the next go around, when he sees Jim, it, like for the first time in the movie, Edward is starting to exhibit uh, physical traits of anger, and it's starting to be apparent that it's coming through. Again, we mentioned the public opinion on him is turning. His approval rating is like at twenty five percent right now, uh, but then <laughs> fake news. But then least. when it goes to t- when it goes to twenty six, he'll tweet out a thank you. So the Christmas party rolls around, and I guess the implication uh, or the inference is that the Bogs throw a big annual Christmas party this year. Everyone's not going to go because they're concerned about uh, Edward's state. By now, Kathy Baker has started the rumors saying that Mm -hmm. she was almost raped by Edward. To be fair to that, as a viewer defending that idea, it's not her that we hear say it. It seems like a, like with anything in that town, it's a nasty game of telephone because nope. there is there is a shot later where she is on the phone with one of the cadres. Oh, damn it. You're right. Yeah. Yep. And she they're, goes, they're doing like, like the, you know, they have a teenage daughter and, and they're still letting him live there even after he did to me. So, no, yeah. fuck her. <laughs> okay. You're right. You're right. So in preparation for the Christmas party, we get this incredible just – I don't even know if Alan Arkin knew he was being filmed. He's just putting Christmas <laughs> decorations up and singing um, – what is it? These Three Kings, I think, is what he's singing. But And he's just crooning it. And again, not paying attention to anything that's going on because this is the portion where like Anthony Michael Hall and Edward Scissorhands get in a fight. Yep. And he's just like slowly descending down the ladder. So anyway, the obviously the most visual and memorable – Part of this scene is uh, Edward, for the first time, creates an ice sculpture. And then doing so, because, you know, is the way his blades work, it begins shaving the ice and creating the illusion of snow. And again, I, I want to believe this, like, it happens in California because fucking Kim, Winona Ryder, acts like, you know, she's never seen. It's like uh, she's been scouring the desert for 20 years and comes across a bottle of water. She's like, oh, my God. So then she goes and starts, you know, doing her little twirl under it, and this is this it, is where she falls in love with him, I guess. I guess. I mean, th- this is we have maybe twenty minutes left of the movie, and to be fair, the last time I saw snow, I felt the same way. You just fell I'd, in love with the with the dude. I stood that was... in the middle of it and put my arms in the air and <laughs> twirled around. Well, she doesn't fall in love with the snow, though. That's the problem. She falls in love with Johnny Depp. So touche. Does she fall in love with him because he created the snow? Or is this just somehow this opens her eyes? That's the problem. I, I guess underneath everything else, or superseding everything else, somehow, maybe it wasn't his intention at the time, but to me, Edward Scissorhands has this legacy of being this epic love story. And uh, maybe it wasn't meant to be, but I can tell you for sure that it does not work as one. 
right now because there's there's nothing between these two. Uh, the closest that I can come to is uh, some sort of I don't know compassion slash guilt that when a writer might be feeling toward. Uh, Edward Scissorhands. This has to completely come from a place of guilt. She got this guy uh, arrested and thrown in the pen with God knows. Who knows what kind of crimes are committed around there. And then again, I'm pretty sure nobody messed with the guy that had blades on his hands. I do love the idea, too, that their prison system locally is so dangerous that they can just afford to put this guy <laughs> permanently armed with knives in the general holding tank. <laughs> He'll be okay. Yeah, I guess that's the point. They're like, <laughs> we should have gotten at least one shot of them sliding the ham sandwich under the jail cell and him <laughs> trying to pick it up and fumbling through it. Yeah, you know, it It really, the only other significant interaction they have before this is kind of the scene that we alluded to earlier when he tells her that he knew the entire time it was going on. He knew that they were breaking into Anthony Michael Hall's house, but that he mm-hmm. played along and did it anyway because she asked him. So it really is on her. <laughs> Yeah, so and like it's just that part of like shame. Like Anthony Michael Hall was right, and you didn't believe him. But she tries to be like, "Well, we tried. I wanted to come back for you." He should have been like, "Well, tell that to now." I officially have a record, and the only thing on it is that I was arrested for breaking and entering. I don't even have a social security number. <laughs> but, uh. So we get the uh, the snow sequence, and Anthony Michael Hall Jim is coming down the block, and he can see the love blooming the sparks flying because he like shouts at them to stop and in startling Edward, he slices Kim's hand open. And so this causes Anthony Michael Hall to confront him, push him around, call him a freak, tell him he needs to get gone. Basically just get no one wants you type thing. All this happening under Alan Arkin's nose, basically. He's like literally like 15 (laughs) feet from this happening and just still singing to himself Christmas carols. So Edward snaps. He just walks around. He goes on a rampage. Doesn't hurt anybody, but he cuts apart all the topiaries he had made. He goes to the religious zealot's house and shaves one of hers into like a, a devil head, a devil horn. So the cops are looking for him. So in this rampage, he finally settles down, calms down. A little, a fucking adorable dog comes up next to him and kind of makes him so his uh, emotions subside. But then he hears the uh, sirens. And knows that he is in trouble. He doesn't know much, but he knows that much. Yes. <laughs> if the Pope was coming, you you need to get out of there. <laughs> Having done time, he knows he doesn't want to go back. So uh, he goes, as you do, when you're scared and don't know what to do, he goes back home. At this point, everyone has left. Kevin's across the street at like the neighbor's house. And uh, Diane Weist and Alan Arkin have gone looking for Edward. So Kim is the only one there. And she apologizes for everything. And... She asks him to hold her, and he says he doesn't know how. So he kind of walks away and does like the um, very pensive looking out the window, wondering <laughs> what Christmas is all about. And she comes up and like shows him how to put his arms around her. Shows her what Christmas is all about. There you go. And then uh, we get the emotional flashback to Vincent Price's, uh, the inventor's uh, death. And we find this was, he was going to, it was around Christmas time, and he had gotten hands for edward that he was gonna put on him and why not and of course like right before he's yeah he's gonna do it he passes away so he has like a heart attack right that's yeah i think it's it looked like it but he so he's holding the fake hands or i guess the new hands and as he has a heart attack the hands fall into uh edward's scissor hands and they just shred like it's like he made him a butter it's like you really you were gonna give him this (laughs) you can do you think it was symbolic 
<laughs> in this movie? I couldn't tell. No. <laughs> so it appears he relates that to the the one time he felt closest to someone, and now that has been that uh, memory and thought has been uh, supplanted by this new memory of holding Kim. During all this, uh, Jim, Anthony Michael Hall, has gone and gotten really sauced up with one of his friends and tells him to drive him over. He's going to you know, win Kim back or something. So they're just driving drunk and recklessly down this suburban road, and Edward becomes aware of it, sees Kevin coming back home. He goes and rescues Kevin, but in the process, he basically tackles him and then tries to check on him, make sure he's okay. So he starts just slicing up his face it- and... Uh, <laughs> It's just so fucking so frustrating. <laughs> this, <laughs> this entire just contrivance, it's just terrible. Is he a genius with his hands or not? I, I almost understand him accidentally cutting himself because it's just kind of like you can't give yourself a haircut, right? I mean, mm-hmm. but how the hell does he not notice that he's chopping up uh, <laughs> Kevin's face when he's trying to calm him? Like, and he I, just keeps making it worse and worse. Yeah, it's yeah. It's just like, dude, just back away from the situation. But But it's also just... Nobody, you know, you have Winona, you have Kevin, you have uh, Edward. There's three people that can speak together. They can kind of explain the situation. But instead, they don't say anything and they let the rest of dumb America just overreact. <laughs> so yeah. everybody, the entire neighborhood comes out and they're acting like like Edward was trying to kill the kid. Which doesn't make any sense. No, Winona just doesn't speak up. It's basically just uh, the noble lie, I guess, the greater good. And she just tells him to run because the cops are coming. So he uh, goes back to his home. Uh, Police chief tracks him down, uh, fires his gun into the air to kind of scare off uh, the townspeople from the scent. Basically spares him. He's just like, again, that weird relationship he has with him, keeping him at arm's length. He really made an impression. I want a movie about this guy. Yeah. <laughs> Just a side quest, the, the, the spin-off of the cop whose life changed forever when he arrested Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> uh, it's not good enough for the townspeople. They storm the mansion with their torches and pitchforks. Yep. <laughs> Kim beats them there. She goes to see him and basically wants to check on him, see how he is, see if he's okay. Let him know she was worried. Uh, all the while, Jim had followed her there. He's got a gun. We get into a, a scuffle here with Jim and Edward fighting. Eventually leads to Winona telling him to stop or she's going to kill him. She actually holds Edward's uh, hand to his throat. It's actually pretty cool. And then something I completely forgot about, fucking Anthony Michael Hall slaps her in the face and pushes her over. And then we get kind of this standoff where she gets up. Edward's in between her and Jim. And he says something like, don't touch her. And then he just turns around and just fucking stabs him right in the gut. And pushes him out of the window. No more hesitation. <laughs> nope. So immediately, Edward realizes that like this is it. He, he killed a guy. He can. It's never going to be okay again for him to go anywhere. And so does Winona because she comes up and she's like, you know, I have to go. I have to stay. Type thing. They have the the last exchange of dialogue between the two of them, where she says, "I love you." No, he says goodbye, and then she says, "I love you," and then you get like the release of emotion <laughs> from him. And they kiss, right? They kiss. She, well, she kisses him. Yeah. He doesn't react one way or another in the sense that not the way he reacted when Kathy Baker was straddling him. So yeah. Once again, the movie has very quickly just backed off from that aspect of his personality. So she goes down, she grabs one of the spare claws on her way down and just lets the townspeople know, yeah, he's dead, but he killed him too. They killed themselves in a fight. They're so stupid that they just buy it right away. Yeah. And then like they all just kind of leave and no one really, 
I half expected when we go to the future, you know, 50 years from whenever this is, that Anthony Michael Hall was just still there laying down because no one ever <laughs> attended to him. So the townspeople are like, well, what do we do now? Let's go find it. Let's go see what else is on TV is pretty much what they do. Yeah. And uh, then we come back to old Monona finishing up the story of uh, I never saw find out that she never saw him again after that. But she still thinks he's there um, because there's still snow. And he was the only one that could create snow. And her grandkid is just crying uncontrollably. <laughs> she asks, like, how do you know all this? And Winona has the badass line of, I was there. And then, of course, we cut back to the top of the, the hill where the mansion is. And Edward is there making uh, ice sculptures and making it snow for all the townspeople. So, see, is this just Winona He's not aged today. Yeah, exactly. So did he not age because he's just not programmed to age? He's programmed to get drunk, but not to age? Or is this just Winona Ryder's memory or, or fantasy of what she thinks might be happening? Because she doesn't know for sure that he's alive. She's just saying, well, it didn't used to snow, and now it snows. Therefore... Well, I think it's supposed to be... They're supposed to be concordant, like, in real time, running concordantly. And uh, this is just how Tim Burton sees himself, that he's never going to age. He's going to live to, you know, 500 years old and look exactly the same. Keep making Meanwhile, the exact same Helena movie. Bonham Carter is, you know, smoking and drinking uh, <laughs> old fashions every day and talks like this about the snow. <laughs> it was uh, among the many things that upset me uh, with this ending. Probably the main one was that Diane Wiest, who pretty much starts this movie as the protagonist, mm-hmm. is not even given uh, a, a proper exit. She just kind of shows up late to the big drama at the end, to the climatic thing where he he seems to have hurt Kevin. And uh, the last time you see her and Alan Arkin, they're just kind of saying, hey, it's not so bad. He's, he's going to be okay. And then you never see him again. That's a really weird pivot because they give her so much screen time. We spend so much time with her. And you can't tell me that as a member of the audience, you're not at least a little bit curious to see how she handled the fact that Edward apparently killed Anthony Michael Hall, like her her daughter's ex-boyfriend. And, well, uh, again, if it was made today, it would be an hour longer, so you'd have more time to <laughs> tell that, that portion of the story. Uh, I think it fits in, in the with the overall tone of the movie, of just how often things are just dropped and never addressed again. Yeah. I guess my, my other overall thought was just that this was Tim Burton's condemnation of America in a way that was not constructive. You know, I think that this is all the way back in the 90s. He was calling people out for behaving the way they behave now. And I kind of wish that maybe if he had given us something that had a little more faith in humanity, maybe it wouldn't we wouldn't be where we are. You know, it, it, like that self-fulfilling prophecy that I that I mentioned earlier is like you, you just told everybody that they're that they suck. And then surprise, they end up sucking. You know, it's like, what, what's the what's the end result here? What's the, the moral of the story? That uh, weirdos, outcasts are better off on their own, right? Because that's really basically what happens. They give up on Edward. Uh, Diane Wiest, Alan Arkin, Winona Ryder, they all kind of, as soon as things start going the wrong way, they just all kind of agree that, yeah, it's better off if he just, it's better if he just goes back where nobody, where he can't interact with anybody because it's too much trouble for us to, to be better parents, to be better friends, to, to keep him out of trouble, to teach him how to coexist. What kind of message I mean, is that? <laughs> he wasn't entirely wrong about the societal aspect of it. Right, but uh, but it's like, give me some sort of... Uh, if, if the best thing you can come up with is telling me, yeah, you know, they, they kind of ended up having this platonic relationship long distance 
because it was just like the few somewhat decent people in this world didn't even bother to to try to make things right. Instead, they just took the easiest path, which was, hey, let's just send him back <laughs> where he's away from everybody. Yeah, it definitely didn't feel like there was virtue in the end, which it's kind of a life on its side conclusion to it all. Yeah. And he was just getting started. It was 1990. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't think his outlook on things got much better from this point forward. <laughs> all right. You ready to move this along? Let's go to real talk. You're here. They didn't hurt you, did they? Were you scared? I tried to make Jim go back, but you can't make Jim do anything. Thank you for not telling them that we... You're welcome. It must have been awful when they told you whose house it was. I knew it was Jim's house. You did? Yes. Well, then why'd you do it? Because you asked me to. All right. I am recording for Real Talk. Perfect. As am I. Real Talk for Edward Scissorhands as the summer of Winona carries on. Uh, Again... Christmas release of December 7th, 1990 for Edward Scissorhands, directed by Tim Burton, I mean, obviously, and written by Caroline Thompson. The contrarian's significance of Miss Thompson, Julio, you know what it is? Um, fuck. Did she write that uh, movie with uh, Jennifer Garner and Timothy Oliphant? Uh, no. I forget what that movie's Catch called. Catch and Release. <laughs> Catch and release. God, what a whopper that was. <laughs> Miss Carolyn Thompson wrote Nightmare Before Christmas, our very oh, first episode. I knew that. When we had not quite figured out what we were doing with this, but we surely talked about that movie. Budget of, let's see here, $20 million box office return of a little bit under $90 million, So definitely uh, staked its claim at the box offices. And obviously, I don't. I don't, I don't, I don't, I can't call this movie a cult movie. I'm tripping over my words there, but like the idea. Yeah, I that, wouldn't think so. I'd, I've heard some people, like some of the pieces I was reading, refer to it as like a cult classic. And it's, I, and no, you know, the typical cult movie either A, is not a well received movie critically or not well received financially. And this movie was both. And I think it's um, definitely embedded into American pop culture at this point. So, very interesting viewing. This movie was so much different than I had remembered. Um, I think time, like I had seen it so long ago, and time had war- warped, excuse me, my my interpretation of it, because since then I've seen so many bad Tim Burton movies that just are weird and kooky just for the sake of being weird and kooky that I think the parts of this movie that are barely that really embellish the whole idea and gimmick of it all, I think were way oversaturated in my memory. And so watching this and seeing how subtle a lot of it is and how just kind of comparatively speaking for Tim Burton tame it is, 
I came away with a great appreciation for it. So I will be interested to discuss further with you, Julio. First and foremost, though, sounds like we've got some uh, friends in the podcasting community that didn't think so highly of it. Nope. Yeah, we, we have some negatrons. So first off, in this, we kind of saw coming. Uh, Mitch from Geek Elite Media, he gave us a clip for Beetlejuice. And in that clip, he said that he usually doesn't like Tim Burton movies. So it makes sense that when he sends us a clip for Edward Scissorhands, it would be a negative one. 100%. This is Mitch from Geek Elite Media. And the thing that I'm going to have to say about Edward Scissorhands is probably going to take away my geek card because I can't stand Tim Burton movies. Okay, now that I've gotten that out of the way, uh, I wouldn't say I can't stand all of Tim Burton movies. I just can't stand about half of his movies. And Edward Scissorhands is definitely one of the ones that I can't stand. To, to me, Tim Burton is definitely one of the directors out there that goes more for style over substance, and it shows in Edward Scissorhands. Like, the beginning of that movie is so stylized that it takes away from the rest of the story. I know I've seen it many times as a, as a child, and uh, I know that it's one of those movies that came on uh, like a premium cable channel like HBO many times over and over when it was new. So I've seen it. I just couldn't tell you very much about the other characters outside of Johnny Depp's Edward. That includes Winona Ryder. Winona Ryder doesn't have a very memorable character for me. And she is a goal. She is a achievement. She is a, a prize for Edward to win. And unfortunately, it's against Anthony Michael Hall. It's just not a movie that I care for. And Winona Ryder, unfortunately, is not showcased well in the movie. A lot. A lot to argue against uh, there. But yeah. I also see where he's coming from in, in some of those points. So I'm, I'm looking forward to refuting at least some of it. Next, we're going to go with uh, Billy from We Watch a Thing. We've had two clips from Topher in past episodes of the Summer of Winona. This is uh, Billy's first incursion. And, who you know, I, I in my mind, Billy's uh, one of those people that, you know, he tends to be pretty positive about most of the things that he watches. So when he told me that he was negative on Edward Scissorhands, it was, it was pretty shocking. Julio, Alex, it's Billy here from We Watched a Thing. I hope that you're having fun on your journey through Winona's filmography. I personally can't say that I would. One that I certainly would not enjoy is Edward Scissorhands. Now, I haven't seen this movie since I was, I must have been nine or ten years old. And this movie was so awful that it ruined pizza and ribs for me. We used to have this amazing pizza and ribs place in our town. And I remember we got it the night that I watched Edward Scissorhands and I cried so hard, harder than I ever have in my whole life, except for maybe when I watched Up. And I cried so hard that to this day, if I put a rib in my mouth, I start to cry just because it makes me think of Edward Scissorhands. And that's just not fair. That's not the kind of movie that you want to see. There's, just, there's nothing good about that. It also, for me, really feels like that's the point where Burton started to turn towards his really goth-heavy stuff, which I'm just not into. I just don't care for modern-day Burton. Everything is grim, everything is dark, everything is very, very deppy, and it's just not for me. So I hope you guys enjoy it more than I do, and hopefully you won't cry as much, and hopefully you'll still be able to enjoy the taste of a beautiful rib. 
and I love you guys very much. Peace out. This movie is definitely very, very deppy, but I I can't imagine. I'm not even like the biggest Rip fan, but I can't imagine any Tim Burton movie putting me off any sort of food. I still have a hard time eating watermelon because I was eating watermelon when I watched Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> Bit of a different reason. I didn't start crying or anything, but uh, yeah. Uh, did you cry with this one? No, I, I know this is like a movie that, and you know, I'm a fairly emotional guy. It's a movie that's uh, a lot of people, you know, tears at the end. No, I'd be way more inclined to, I don't know. I think I potentially got more emotional about Beetlejuice. Just the, That's a much heavier thing, though, talking about death. The, dealing with and accepting death and whatnot. And yeah, uh, we have one more here, uh, like we did with uh, Dracula. It's a... Uh, John and Harry from uh, Beyond the Box Set. Once again, John is is just questioning Harry's opinion. So, Harry, what did you think of Edward Scissorhands? Meh. Yeah. Just meh? Yeah. Probably would have been better if I'd have watched it as a child. Yeah. As opposed to watch it for the first time as an adult. I think that's probably true of a lot of Tim Burton stuff. I think it needs to hit you at the right time for it to work. Mm. I mean, I watched it after... Um, the point where everybody got sick of Johnny Depp. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't help. And it's a very Johnny Depp role. Oh, so, absolutely, quintessential in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it it's kind of hard to get past it when you don't like Johnny Depp anymore. Mm-hmm. Although, definitely worth it for Winona Ryder's old lady voice. Oh yeah, <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I'm 92 years young. Great. <laughs> Fantastic, classic Winona. Yeah, very good. All right, so. I don't know if you can just blame it, or, you know, in Harry's case, if you can blame it as, oh, I didn't watch it when I was a kid, because clearly both Billy and Mitch watched it when they were kids, and it still kind of ruined it for them. So I watched it as a kid, too, and it obviously my perception of it was warped until I rewatched it today, <laughs> uh, you know, in my 30s, and it definitely changed my level of appreciation and adoration for it. Um, I do agree with what he said, though. Tim Burton, he's definitely one of those directors. For some of his stuff to work, it has to hit you at the right time. For some of his movies, I don't think there ever was a right time for them to hit me. But um, it could be like Batman Returns. Like Batman Returns is a prime example. I loved that when I was a kid, and I rewatched it as an adult. I'm like, this makes no fucking sense. God, Alex, and, what uh, the hell? <laughs> I mean, his first Batman rules. His first, like, it'd probably go it, that. If we rank the Batman movies, the Tim Burton 89 Batman would be probably number three for me. So, uh, you talk about like every Batman movie ever made. Mm hmm. So it's and, above uh, Dark Knight Rises? Yes. It goes, uh, Mask of Phantasm, Dark Knight, 89 Batman. Eh. Case closed. <laughs> that's, that's, Roll that's the credits. wrong of many levels, but yeah. You know. <laughs> anyway, uh, but I definitely agree with that line that his stuff has to. I, I mean, I know that's the same for all art, but some of the more extreme and divisive um, artists, uh, some of their stuff is best suited to hit you at certain portions of your life. And I think uh, definitely with the political and climate of everything right now, this movie definitely, um, it allowed me to watch it through lenses and politically, I'm not just speaking of it is the summer of Winona. I'm (laughs) speaking of (laughs) all the pain and just uh, disappointment that the world, particularly the United States of America, are currently exuding. And uh, I think 
this movie was was a really good and it was analogous to what we're looking at right now. I know this isn't um, the whole idea of this movie is not something that's exclusive to one period of time ever. It's just an accurate commentary on society. But I think right now it definitely offers a new spin on things. Um, and so I found myself taking away a lot more from it in that aspect than I expected to. And also just some of the performances are a lot better than I remember. I mean, Diane Weist, come on. That's, I mean, I know I've said before, that's my favorite actress of all time, but uh, knocks it out of the park. Alan Arkin <laughs> being so disconnected from it all, uh, obviously intentionally, right. but that that's, he's hilarious. Yeah. It's Johnny Depp being something that he would almost to a fault lean into too hard, but there's a reason like expressions like you can't top the original that exist and things like that because, uh, and then there's a reason he was able to lean on that for 30 years and counting because he was so good in it here. And it was because so many people wanted to see him recreate Edward Scissorhands again. So watching it now, again, I took away things. I was fearful that the things my mind were going to, uh, was going to like focus on and zone in on would have been Johnny Depp's performance. But I, I, I've seen Pirates of the Caribbean. This is tame compared to some of the stuff he would later do. So it's, to me, that's not really much of a distraction. It's a fine movie. Have you, uh, have you seen the Tim Burton's Willy Wonka? If I remember correctly, I started it and just was like, no, and stopped. <laughs> That is that is super deppy. I just remember that one and, and I I don't hate it. I will, you know, I my super controversial opinion is that I actually prefer that to the original. Uh but <laughs> Alex's face right now, dear listeners. <laughs> clearly a discussion for another episode. <laughs> but, yeah. But uh but even then, you know, I could tell you that it, Johnny Depp's performance is so out there that yes by comparison what he's doing here in Edward Scissorhands it's very quirky and it's very weird but really what shines the most is I think the heart in it I mean it's a Johnny Depp vehicle it, it's it's a summer of Winona but this is one of those movies where she's just second fiddle I mean yeah don't get it twisted it's definitely a Johnny Depp movie that's directed by Tim Burton uh, it's it checks those boxes for sure <laughs> but at the end of the day like that idea has a negative connotation in some circles of film fans and critics now, but that's because it kind of got played out. It didn't always have that. And the reason they went back to that well so many times is because this was such a rousing success. And you would think because it was the genesis of this whole thing that it would be the most like kitschy and the most cliche. And it's definitely the tamest I've seen of their collabs. Yeah. Uh, I think the reason I went to Willy Wonka is because in, in that movie, Johnny Depp is doing sort of a similar uh, man-child approach. He's here, he's he's a kid, and he's just looking at everything through the eyes of a kid almost, you know, re discovering things, and uh, his reactions are very childlike, very innocent. And Willy Wonka has, his Willy Wonka has sort of an element of that where he's just very, uh, he can be very childish and very just childlike, Uh doesn't work as well. <laughs> so um, that, I don't know if you're speaking to this, but according to Tim Burton, that was the entire idea of the aesthetic of this movie. You're supposed to be like, we're watching this as an audience uh, through Edward's eyes. That's why the colors are so vibrant. And like, 
the outfits are so over the top because it is like a child seeing all these things for the first time. So oh, that's pretty cool. That's, yeah, no, I, yeah. No, I was more, more thinking of just his performance, not not so much like what we're seeing from his point of view, but more about his reaction to things when we see him. Uh, just the way his facial expressions and his uh, his mannerisms and his his cadence. It's just like he's a kid. So it's I think it works really well. Certainly, like I said, better than it does later, years, years later in uh, Willy Wonka. Uh, and then, you know, I'm sure he has other other roles where he's kind of been in this ballpark. But this might be the mm. ultimate, the ultimate performance of Johnny Depp as a man child that works. <laughs> um, so I know it's a summer Winona. Let's uh, let's save her for the end because her she's pulling the. Um judy dench and shakespeare in love she's on screen for like four minutes and got the oscar nomination for it uh so let's save her for the the feature portion of it uh what you know we were kind of trailing there at the end of um contrarian's corner you kind of brought up one of the things that is hard to say about this movie is it hits the nail on the head about the mob mentality and the societal way america obviously white people specifically have become against people that are different than them and things they don't understand the difficulty of the movie is is i'm not entirely sure what it says is the right way for that because like you said in the end edward just has to go back up to his castle and live there forever it's uh, which fucking sucks (laughs) he's just he's cast out for being different and that's that's a really uh sad story to tell i mean i know they do it in a way that get that leaves you with hope but i guess i didn't know what to take away from that That was that was yeah i I was on that same spot as you when it it, even though i knew how it ended i think this is the first time that i've had to like really think about the ending and uh i mean you're right i think that the very specific circumstances in which we're watching this movie (laughs) with all the turmoil surrounding us um I think it made the mob mentality aspect of it hit even harder. Therefore, I wanted something a little more decisive at the end, something a little more... I don't need it to be a happy ending. I don't need it to be uplifting. But I wanted it to say something, even if if it's going to be a tragic ending where he is out there, you know, this is kind of unfair because, you know, they made the movie they wanted to make and whatever. But it, the fact that Winona Ryder seems to be at peace with the way things ended bothers me. The way that she's telling this bedside story to her grandkid and just kind of telling her, no, it's okay because he's making snow for us. It just feels like that's really horrible. (laughs) You took this innocent Mm -hmm. creature, you you put him through this just tornado of experiences in like, I don't know, two weeks, three weeks, however long he's in that town. And then you basically drove him to the point where he you know, he ends up killing Anthony Michael Hall, and that's not entirely on him. <laughs> you know, it's like mm-hmm. you could say that they pushed him to that to that scenario. This is just a guy that was he was not fully functional. They kind of like threw him on the fast lane of socializing, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So I was I was writing my notes for Contreras Corner. And I was like, that's a pretty good point to make as far as the negative, but it's also a very true one, which is just what are you saying about the way society treats outcasts? Yes, we agree. This is this is wrong, and it's. I think that most people watching. I don't. Know, I can't imagine anybody watching the movie and going like, "Well, they had it coming," <laughs> or "This is right." But I, I wish that there was, there was more to that. I wish that there was at least the acknowledgement that they, they also failed him. It's not that the town failed him, and then Diane Weist, Alan Arkin, and we're not writer are kind of like, 
well, what else could we do? Well, you could have fought a little harder, or you could at least seem like acknowledge that it it really sucks what happened instead of turning it into this sort of fairy tale with a with a bittersweet ending. Is that me asking too much of something that is very much a fairy tale? That's very much said as a fairy tale. I mean, the, now that we're in real talk, I can go with the with the weird logic or lack of logic in the storytelling i can go because the visuals are really strong mm-hmm. and the, i think the emotional undercurrent is strong enough that you just barrel through all the plot holes because what matters is just the emotion but i was really surprised with uh how much those the scenes with johnny depp and vincent price worked for yeah. me like they, they seem so so silly and like it seen that that's like the premise of an SNL skit is like you know someone <laughs> is Johnny Depp and Vincent Price making cookies together, but it's uh, it's really good. It's really like it sucks, and it plays into the ending too. That whole thing about uh, when he's getting at the hands, but then they fall apart as uh, Vincent Price dies and whatnot. But yeah, it's weird, and it's. Um, I'm curious if some of these things we're talking about. Obviously, again, <laughs> certain uh, current climate plays into some of our thought process, but I reading an interview with Tim Burton, he based it off. I don't know if he was when he was a little kid or high school or what it was, but he just felt like in a certain point of his life, he just kind of drove everyone away that got near him. And that's kind of what he based the, the idea of this character off of. But I think there's more to it than that also. And the things you're saying about like the, the, that this was the people's fault too. But then, then that whole idea of the things, you know, at any point, Winona Ryder could have just told people what actually happened mm-hmm. and like could have told, Hey, uh, Jim made us made uh, Edward. He tricked him. He used me and I used him to, you know, break it into his parents' house. And, but it's that whole thing too, of even right now we see it. If someone's different, people are going to see what they want to see and, you know, jump to their own conclusions about things. And it's, it sucks. It's uh it's obviously a, a, a movie that is supposed to be a fantasy and a fairy tale, but you're exactly right. In the end, I I wanted, I used the word valor and vor, uh, virtue earlier, and those are the kind of things I wish we could get from it. Obviously, that also artistically makes it more beautiful that it's, that it's not perfect, that there's still, in the end, there's this longing, but I would have liked a, a better bow on it just given everything right now because I hate the idea of some <laughs> things are just going to be this way forever. But even if 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 you were if the movie was to say that, that's fine. But then let's acknowledge that that's what you're saying because that's my main problem. Mm-hmm. That when you when you bookended with an old Winona writer using this as a bedtime story, it just it it seems like oh this is sad, but you know, but it's okay because I know that he's still there, and because we get snow now. Yeah, it's such a weird thing. You know, just if you're going to if you're going to break the harsh realities of life to your grandkid, then just go all the way. Don't <laughs> don't puss out at the very end and, and make it sound like it's okay that 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 all this happened. Uh, or at least that it's not so bad. Especially because the the critique to the society is just so strong throughout the movie. Uh, again, we're maybe overly sensitive right now and that's why it felt that way, but um if underneath all the comedy, it, I was just, man, these are all horrible people. Every single person that shows up to that yeah. barbecue, even the guy that at some point he, uh, the guy that's a veteran, and he's like, oh, you know, you're not, 
it's not a handicap, you know, because I, I got hurt when I was in Vietnam or whatever. And he taps his his leg and you're like, all right, this guy gets it. And then later that later in the movie, he is uh, calls him a cripple. Yeah, he calls him a cripple. He, he's asking Kevin, you know, to let him know when they put him away. I mean, it's like nobody. The moment that one person turns, everybody turns. And it's like, yep. I mean, I see it happen in real time <laughs> all the yep. time here. And so it was just yeah, it was very easy to to just be disgusted by it in i mean i think that you mean you're meant to but at the same time maybe young uh tim burton and young caroline thompson they were not really anticipating maybe such a strong reaction from somebody like me <laughs> they were just like oh this is this just supposed to be funny and we're poking fun at the hypocrisy of of the average i don't know american suburban community i yeah i don't think they anticipated things being so violently accurate 30 years later <laughs> So, you know, uh, and the, uh, the other thing that, uh, appealing specifically to certain circumstances, and this, this may just be due to where my head's at right now, way over analyzing it, but I did think there was something if Tim Burton was here, I, the one question I want to ask him was the idea of, uh, the black cop being understanding and helpful, with Edward because he was black and understood what it was like to be an outlier. Yep. I, th- I would have to think it was, would be because he's the only black character in the movie. Yeah. Uh, either that, or it could be, I know at least early Tim Burton. I honestly never gone through his filmography where I analyze it, but I, I know he's one of those filmmakers that get criticized for not having much in the way of diversity on his mm-hmm. movies. It could be that it was written this way. It could be that, he made that decision. It could be that the the person that was in charge of the casting kind of had that genius idea. He saw a character, the one character that actually is sympathetic uh, uh, in a sincere way towards Edward. He's like, hey, what if we cast a black person? He could be the one black person in the movie. I don't know. But whoever had that idea, uh, I would like to think it wasn't an accident. I mean, I think that it makes sense that it would, it feels mm-hmm. like that's somebody's idea, even if it wasn't Burton's. <laughs> yeah. I said outlier. I should have said treated like an outlier. Um, but yeah, and it's a very subtle thing. It's not one of, it's not green book. It doesn't beat you over the head with the whole idea of it all. Uh, it's very subtle and a a really touching idea. And again, it's, it's sad that things of that nature, so much, you know, more prolific, uh, not more prolific, prolific, but, um, aggressive and in this time and, um, the actor, who played the police chief? What was his name? Uh, Dick Anthony Williams, I believe. Uh, really good. Uh, I don't think there was any performance by an actor or actress in this movie that was lacking. I think everyone hit the nail on the head for what was required or what was asked for their their character. Now, I remember being a kid, and the rumor always was that Michael Jackson was gonna, was supposed to be Edward Scissorhands. Like that was the too much. That's uh, <laughs> that's a no for me. <laughs> I, I don't know if there's I don't know if there's any truth to it. I just remember that was like you know the schoolyard discussion back in the day, and that was always one of those like you know urban legends. You know if you play it backwards, you find out that it's actually Michael Jackson. In it. <laughs> I I don't um, see it. Well, I mean, I guess we keep going back to Willy Wonka because that's his performance, Depp's performance in that movie is either rumored or 100% confirmed that it was based on Michael Jackson. And you can kind of see the similarities. But in this case, I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember what it was like, what what the 
public persona Michael Jackson was in 1990. But I think that he would have brought too much baggage to the character to begin with. That's my my gut reaction. I don't personally think it was ever true. I just think it was <clears throat> 1990. It might have been too busy making the Michael Jackson's Moonwalker video game to really <laughs> do much of anything in the way of uh, major motion pictures. Uh, according to my research, Tom Cruise, Jim Carrey, and Robert Downey Jr. were all at one point considered for the role of Edward Scissorhands. Jim Carrey would have made this movie completely different. Yep. Uh, I mean, and Tom, each of those picks. And Tom Cruise, yeah, would be ridiculous. <laughs> the It would be weird. Especially the part where Diane Weiss would be a full foot taller than him. <laughs> we're also just the, the, the running joke of every single woman in the neighborhood having the hots for him. It would be undermined if you have Tom Cruise. That's very true. Winona Ryder dropped out of The Godfather 3 to appear in this film. I know we had previously spoken about her dropping out of that, but apparently this was the one that uh, got the rug pulled out. Really? Wow. That's. I mean, I guess the, the, the timeline makes sense, but I, I just thought that that was later in her career. I mean, probably a good call. One of our, I believe it was Ashley, one of our uh, clips sent in reference Nick Carter of Backstreet Boys fame being in the movie. And he has, yeah, that's actually true. He has an uncredited role. Oh, really? Uh, in the very beginning. Oh, yeah. I thought that she was just making fun of uh, uh, Anthony Michael Hall. Oh, no, no, no. Nick Carter was like a little child here. Uh, he's playing on a slip and slide in the neighborhood at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> My favorite thing going through the IMDb trivia section is, uh, you know, sometimes you read these things that like blow your fucking mind. And then for this one, it was like, Edward's hair is based off Robert Smith of The Cure. And it's like, <laughs> what? who thought it necessary to even put that in there? Well, I'm glad that somebody actually put it in print because otherwise I would have thought that it was either that or uh, Tim Burton's own hairdo. It could be that Tim Burton's <laughs> is inspired also by uh, the guy from The Cure. Uh, they just did like the mirror gag from the parent trap, like Tim Burton and Johnny Depp when he was in full costume. They went up side by side. Again, it's it's Depp, it's Deppisms, it's the the depth of the sea here with Johnny Depp. And um, I think comedically it hits its notes. That whole part where he does just kind of throw in that like the non sequitur of, and then she took all her clothes off. Like that that made me laugh. And uh, Alan Arkin's great, and it's. It's way more fascinating than I remembered it being. And I understand it's really easy to lump in all these Johnny Depp and Tim Burton movies. And in a lot of cases, Johnny Depp movies in general, people lump them all together. And that's kind of understandably so. But I I guarantee this is a, a way more interesting one. And there's a lot more to discuss from it than, you know, 80% of the other ones that are out there. And Johnny Depp movies just in general. I mean, he's a great actor. But but he um, made the tourist. definitely. <laughs> definitely fell into his comfort zone. I was gonna. I was wondering honestly if we were gonna be able to go the entire podcast without bringing up the tourist. <laughs> Man, I thought I was being so clever. <laughs> I was. I had him running through my head. I was like, which shitty Johnny Depp movie can I throw out there? And I mean, it doesn't get shittier than nailed the tourist. it. No, it does not. You nailed it with that one. So yeah, I mean, I think I've said my piece on uh, the movie and. Um, the other thing I did want to call out in terms of uh, complimenting it was the Danny Elfman score. This movie wouldn't have been nearly as impactful or uh, wouldn't hit as hard had it not been for Elfman's score. Yeah, it definitely it doesn't overpower the movie. It just 
it works so well. We made fun of it in Contrarian's Corner, but really I think that he just works so well with, with Tim Burton, Tim Burton's sensibilities. Again, we, we mocked it in Contrarian's Corner, but I I actually appreciate the consistency. It, it's just, you know, it's a Tim Burton movie with a Danny Elfman score, and it, it's very clear from, like, the first second, and it's... It's fucking uh, Nolan and Hans Zimmer. It's like yeah, that same thing. Yeah. There's, there's just like a, they're in sync, and uh, I don't know if the the production design person is also the same. If he's kept, it, but you know, from the opening credits, all that stuff. I, I wrote it on my Contrarian's Corner notes. Uh, I said this is a production design porn, and I made it <laughs> as a joke, but it really is. You know, it's a cool thing. It's one of the reasons that you can buy in into the movie is because the the visuals are so fascinating. And uh, I think that they very quickly established that you're not in the real world in the sense that, you know, leave your your uh, critical thinking of plot as it is, you know, at the door and just kind of let me take you on this ride and I'll, I'll tell you the rules as, as we go. And I think that that starts, you know, very early on with with the music, with the with the way that things look and uh, and of course the performances. You know, it's all, yeah, it's, it's good Tim Burton. Yeah, and just down, I, I brought it up in Contrarian's Corner, but it's serious. Little details, if you're going to try to pull off something like this and be successful, you have to have every base covered. And just the having the difference of the, the custom 20th Century Fox signature at the beginning, I know it seems really small and minute, but like that's so critical from second number one of the movie. You know you're in for something different, and that here's your guide to take you through it. So uh, that brings us to, obviously, the... The matriarch of the summer of Winona, Miss um, Winona Ryder. Uh, again, talking about things that I didn't remember from this movie, she really is not in it that much. Like she, she has like the most important scenes, mm-hmm. but the real female lead of the movie is Diane Weist. Until and, uh, they just, I guess, sidetrack her <laughs> in the climax. Yeah, Alan Arkin's just like, "Fuck this, we're going yeah, home." Basically. Yeah, the fucking old lady stuff's fine. It's easy to parody and joke about, but again, uh, A plus for me because it was practical effects, which I'm all about. We've seen much and, worse. Uh, oh, We've yeah. seen Jay Edgar. Yeah. I, I think I called out Jay Edgar in, in Contreras Corner, and it's just to me, you know, the bottom of the barrel when it comes to old people makeup. And between the opening clip, like the bookmarked clips, I think it's it's maybe five minutes total. So it's not like it's there long enough to like really start getting tired of and, you know, saying stop. Mm-hmm. But her performance in the movie, I, I'm not going to say it's my favorite of hers we've done so far, but it's very you want to talk about relatable just being that dumb high school kid. But that struggle of knowing what's right and, you know, doing it, not doing it, peer pressuring, that type of stuff. I mean, her character is really relatable. I mean, in the end, yeah, it's really, um, it is a fairy tale and it's really silly that she kisses him and says, I love you. It's like, you guys have known each other for like two weeks. (laughs) It's, it's like me with wrestling. It's like, I love you. And then someone's like, you know, it's fucking fake, right? It's (laughs) like with Johnny Depp. It's like, you know, he's a, he's not a real human, right? All right. uh, I, I took it. I, I, I made my peace with it by recontextualizing the the love. It's not that she says I am in love with you. She's saying I love you. I I felt as this time finally I felt that she was just saying I appreciate you. I see you. You know I know that right now everything is shitty. Every single person that you trusted that that acted like they liked you they just turn on you. But 
I love you. And I, I thought it was really sweet. I didn't see it as uh, a romantic gesture. I just saw it as a very human mm-hmm. moment. And I accept you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was, you know, I tell my cats I love them all the time. <laughs> it doesn't mean I want to marry them. It just means that, you know, I'm telling them that I love them. So uh, I thought, actually, I'm curious. What did you, what was your memory of Winona Ryder's performance in this movie? What did you think it was like? Because I remember in past episodes, you mentioned something about how, like, in your mind, Winona Ryder and Edward Scissorhands was an example of what you don't like of Winona Ryder. But I don't think that's the case now that you've seen it again. So what was do you remember what you were thinking of? No. I I feel like I just um I think now reality bites would be what I think of when I think of overtly stereotypical Winona <laughs> Ryder. The really like because yeah, I don't know where I got it from with this movie. I guess I likely just she's one of those actresses that uh, I just basically composited all of her performances together and then just kind of picked and chose what I wanted to elsewhere. But yeah, for this, I thought it was way more that Winona uh, were like drawing out <laughs> specifically vowels and words and, you know, very airy and breathy speech. And um, a lot of those like standing at an angle, like with your head tilted and like looking like with the, like, the how dare you type look so yeah i don't know where that came from i guess that's the the um your memory can play tricks on you or convince you of things because it's not if i was like doing sketch comedy and i was gonna do like my winona Ryder impression i would not base it off of this right but that's always what i thought i thought this was like what SNL and you know people like that would base their impression of her off of but it's not it's it's really inconsequential like in, in the overall it's just a good polished performance and has a couple like uh high points but it's not it's remarkably unremarkable and it's funny that for whatever reason my brain had built up this weird stereotype about I think it. that uh uh I mean, no, I, I have no idea also what was going on. Obviously, I, there's no way for me to know what was going through your head. But <laughs> I I also haven't seen this movie in a while. And to me, you know, I always thought of it as a romance. I think part of the marketing sells it to you as a romance, too. I mean, uh, the... Oh, yeah, the fucking... Yeah, poster. exactly. You know, where she's hu- uh, hugging him from behind. And, and I, I watched, like, a couple of the TV spots on the DVD. And it's just like this, you know, they're pushing it as a, this love story. And it's not really that. Uh, but but when you have it in your head that that's what it is, and then you remember kind of the iconic things, you know, her saying, I love you, and her sort of twirling under the snow, it gives you an, an idea of her character that's not really the character that's uh, in the movie. Because, like you said, the character is not really in the movie that much. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. And this might be the least. I have to go through our our summer, but I think so far the more she's done with the least amount of material, and that's not like a bad thing. I'm not saying that that the character is uh, badly written, but it's just that she doesn't have much to do beyond being like I actually like Mitch called out. Like she's she's there mostly for Johnny Depp to to have somebody to focus on uh, for most of the of the runtime. But then we go, we come back to something that I've mentioned in past episodes. Uh, whenever I point out that sometimes her role in the movie is just not just based on aesthetics, but also based on kind of the the aura that she projects, the that she can be kind of the 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 heart of the movie, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the way she looks, but just you know, people sometimes they project a certain personality, they project a certain you know 
aura and and i think that she she has that i think that given what the movie what the movie gives her there are many actresses that i don't think would have been able to pull off the emotional moments because there's yeah. so little to to build on and yet I, you know, it, it's emotional when you see her dancing in slow motion. It's not just that it's it's a, a beautiful thing to look at, but you, even though there is no logical reason why you you should feel this way, you kind of feel like oh, she's had a breakthrough, and and she's just found she's looking at life in a way that she hadn't before. And it's like the movie never really built to that. Like you said, we've been focused on Diane Weist. <laughs> she's been kind yeah. of on the on the back burner. Uh, so you need a very not every actress, not every actor can pull that kind of stuff. And I think that she does. So I think that that has, uh, does something that she has going for her. But of course, how do you get to that? You know, it's like the Tim Burton after Beetlejuice, he cast her because he knew that she can pull off that kind of stuff. Uh, when Caroline Thompson is writing the movie, does she know that they're going to get an actress that can pull that kind of stuff? So she underwrites the character because she knows that, you know, we're not a writer or whoever they cast can pull it off. I don't know. You know, but it's, I, I find that, just very interesting. I mean, I I love the the moment that she gets, but yeah, I mean, it's not. If I had to describe her character, there's not really much I can say. <laughs> I had yeah. more to say about her her android in Alien Resurrection. He here is just like I don't even know why she's. Well, I mean, I can assume that she's dating Anthony Michael Hall because he's the jock or whatever. I was about to say you could psychoanalyze the Anthony Michael the Jim character way more than the Kim character. <laughs> There's like a lot more complexity to that character, which now that I'm thinking about it makes perfect sense and that's she's just simple and pure mm-hmm. and that's probably why Edward is so attracted to her cuz he's like surrounded by all this chaos and vibrance and she's just like this calm in the storm so to speak, which like you said, you can't you hope that it works out. <laughs> when you put together something like this, especially like a movie and you don't know, you know, you can put a car engine together and know it's going to work out. But for something like this, and like you said, the, the writing and what you, what you envision in your mind, you hope that it works out. And in situations like this, when it does, it's pretty unparalleled. Um, while you were talking about the marketing being towards a romance movie, which I agree with you is not necessarily the case. Uh, Winona, we might have to go back through the marketing materials of the other movies after we discovered this thing with the dilemma, <laughs> mismarketing the movie. <laughs> Because now I'm looking at the poster for Edward Scissorhands, and the tagline is, innocence is what he knows, beauty is what she sees. Oh, fuck. That has nothing <laughs> nothing to do with the, the movie nor any of their interactions. Man, in I can't wait to see the, the international posters for Lost Souls sell it as this <laughs> wacky romantic comedy between her and Ben Chaplin. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, God, the trailer for this, yeah, it's probably just cut all the scenes of them like interacting together while Avril Lavigne's complicated plays in the background (laughs) coming into this I I didn't dislike it and I didn't I I thought coming in that my opinion of it was that it was really overrated and I am pleased to say that I was wrong for feeling that way for whatever reason I did coming away from this I think uh, there are some issues like we talked about where things just get dropped and then the movie just moves on, but it happens enough times to where I think that's just part of the movie is Tim Burton. Yep. Just like, all right, we're done with this and go in here. Uh, that, that all being said, there are still some things I wish were a little bit different to appeal to me personally. So I will give it a B plus. Um, yeah, I'll give it, I'll give it a solid four stars. Even if I just put aside my 
today's dissatisfaction with with the way that things wrap up. Yeah, mm. I still, I did, I need a scene with with Diane Weist at least. I need some sort of yeah. Just just wrap that up. Give me you know five minutes, two minutes, or something with, with her where where I at least see her staring at the at the at the mansion next time she drives by or something. Because she's you know she was our entry point. She was half the movie. She was <laughs> his mom. Yeah, <laughs> half the movie. It's her relationship with with Edward, and that just gets dropped uh, in the climax. Um, and yet with all that, it's still it's still worked really well i you know i asked you if you cried i didn't cry but i was like oh you know this is the kind of movie that this is where they push that button i know exactly when billy cried <laughs> so uh yeah i four stars i did cry it over the weekend watching uh sting and puff daddy and faith evans perform i'll be missing you at the 1997 video music awards <laughs> is that the is that the performance where uh Sting is on one, it's kind of like at the front of the stage with the spotlight on him. Everything else is dark. Mm-hmm. And then. And Diddy comes out in a white suit. Dancing, like dancing in the background. Sting singing. Yeah. Oh, dude. I'm not kidding. Like that, that thing gets me verklempt. Like seriously. It's so awesome. Yeah. I, I remember. So double feature, uh, Edward Scissorhands and then hop on YouTube and watch <laughs> Sting and Puff Daddy perform I'll Be Missing You at the 1997 <laughs> Video Music Awards. It's, that was we known as, we known as Jam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was on her playlist. No, shit, I was going to say that was on her playlist when she was getting in costume for Alien Resurrection, but would have been the wrong time period. You got anything left to say on the matter? Uh, no, no. I think I think, I think, think we figured it out, Alex. It is a good movie. We did. <laughs> it is. <laughs> we did. We stumbled through it and discovered some things. That's my favorite episodes like this is where we figure out things while we're recording. <laughs> or there's just moments where you'll say something and I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, okay, so moving on to plugs to close out the episode. Of course, our perennial evergreen plugs, the festive years, provide our opening and closing tracks, as well as some supplemental music in the summer of Winona. Head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend, fellow podcaster, Hansworth Geezer, he did our logo. He does lots of things. Find out about them at his website, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. You can also reach out to him on Twitter at Mildemonios. You can also email him, mildemonios at hotmail.com. If you want logos, if you want comics, if you want to check out his zombie novels, uh, if you want to talk to him about his three podcasts, he has a Nación Combi, which is about Peruvian current affairs, and uh, Marginal, which is about Peruvian economy. What? <laughs> Those two are uh, in Spanish. You can find them on any podcatcher. <laughs> he also has a podcast in English called Living in Peru, about Peruvian immigrants, uh, immigrants to Peru. Uh, that's on iVox. Uh, he actually had a request for a movie, and I told him that we'll do it probably sometime in November or so. There's a Doctor Who movie that's, I guess it was sort of supposed to be a transition from British Doctor Who to American Doctor Who. And he says it's it's very badly, poorly regarded. So he asked to do it. And he's kind of like doing a little reworking of our seasonal logo. So I was like, sure, that sounds like a fair trade. You, <laughs> Hell yeah. You're going to do little things for our, uh, our tomato logo. The least we can do is watch a bad Doctor Who movie and uh, <laughs> and make it sound good. So be on the lookout for that. You got it, Hans. Yeah. And also thank you to Zoe Perez, the operator of our social media, specifically our Instagram account. 
makes a lot of fun, interactive things for y'all to do. She's much better at it than Julio or I would be. So, Zoe, we do appreciate your help and contributions to building the contrarian empire. Uh, as far as plugs, like I was telling Julio before we recorded, I need to start writing down movies I watch because at this point with, you know, working from home and the way everything is, I'm just constantly watching stuff or, you know, reading or going through something. So I just need to start making a, doing a better job of uh, making an actual checklist, not just a mental one. But uh, I'll just say there's a show on Netflix called Ugly Delicious. It's a new show. I think it's it, it's got two seasons, but they both dropped this year. So it's fairly new. It is a documentary series on food. And I know food shows are most of the time really light and easy to process. But these are like hour-long episodes each and they're actual like documentaries on food the guy who hosts it is a chef and he uh, and his friends uh, will travel to different parts of the world and basically like for example the episodes focus on one thing so like there's an episode on pizza and they travel to the different parts of the country and explain what the origins of the pizza are there, uh, what they mean to the country, why it's you know structured the way it is. There's a whole episode on steak that's awesome that like explains you know the socioeconomic ideas behind why people get their steaks rare and why some people like in poor communities will have their steaks well done and that type of stuff. And it's just endlessly fascinating. And then from time to time, there's just these random cameos from celebrities. Like it's not even like they build up to it. It's just like, they'll be talking about something. And then in the next scene they're in Tokyo and for some reason, Aziz Ansari is there. So it's just like, uh, it's, does it make you hungry? Is it the kind of show that makes you hungry? I mean, some of it, but that's just inevitable. It's not like, it's not like a Burger King commercial where it's like close-ups on the mm. cheese slowly melting over the meat or something like that. It's just interesting. I put it on because I was just like, oh, this will just be good background noise. It's because it's like the British Bake Off or something, you know, very light and easy to process. And then, like, I started getting really into it. And it's just like uh, certain parts of it are emotional because you talk to people They've been doing it. It's been their family for five generations and shit. And, yeah, it's one of the better shows about food I've watched recently. And uh, I've, I've cooked so much during quarantine <laughs> that it's definitely something I'm getting into. My mom got me Action Bronson's cookbook for my birthday. Oh, so that's awesome. Definitely looking forward to breaking that out. Yeah. So Ugly Delicious on Netflix. Easy undertaking. It's not like I'm telling you to watch The Sopranos in one weekend. <laughs> Uh, all right, so I have two plugs. The first one has a promo. There's uh, another set of podcasting friends, the guys from the Online Warriors podcast, which is uh, a podcast about entertainment, but mostly, I, at least I always feel that they're mostly video game focused. And uh, with my renewed love for video gaming as of you know recent times, it, it's just, you know, half the time they're talking about things I don't even know, but it's just, it's three three hosts and they're just a lot of fun to hear them talking sometimes it just works when you have like a group of people and you can tell that they're having fun and they know each other and i just enjoy listening to them talk about uh games i didn't even know existed so uh, and then you know they'll talk a little bit about movies and other stuff tv Uh, but anyway here's their promo Hey everybody, this is Nerd Bomber here, one of the co-hosts of the Online Warriors podcast. Our weekly podcast started as a way for three friends to keep in touch and discuss their passion for movies, gaming, technology, and entertainment. 
And since then, we've grown into a fantastic online community. Every Wednesday, we release a new episode discussing the latest nerdy news. And then we go hands-on with our weekly adventures and a fun trivia show. Sound interesting? Check us out on every podcast platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or hit us up at onlinewarriorspodcast.com. So, yeah, check them out. Been trying to get them to record a clip for the summer of Winona. I don't know if they'll get to it, but... uh... I'm, I'm going to see if there's any video games based on any of the movies we've done or are going to do and see if maybe they could just offer any insight God, to that. the Homefront video game would be amazing. But it would be one of those where, like, one person in it wouldn't sign over their likeness. So, like, the Jason Statham character would be, like, uh, some Asian <laughs> dude that they just had to recast. Anyway, my second plug is uh, I sent you pictures. I posted them on, on Twitter, too. I went Friday. So it was the day before Independence Day our one excursion out, we went to a drive-in and we watched Grease. Mm. And yeah. long-time listeners of the show have heard me talk about Grease before. And if you've been paying attention, you have maybe have seen my slight transformation into somebody that actually doesn't mind Grease <laughs> from being someone who thought Grease was the worst. Um, throughout the summer of Travolta, the fact that Alex loves the movie, the fact that my wife loves the movie, uh, and just me repeatedly having to watch it for one reason or another, it became something that I tolerated. And I think that with this final experience at the drive-in, it's become something that I actively enjoy. <laughs> Again, talk about our current circumstances affecting how we process entertainment. Uh, I know a lot of it was just the fact that we were out sort of like uh, at the movies, you know, we're not in danger of anything. We're not endangering anyone. We're inside our car. But, you know, I had a soda. I have popcorn. I had a big screen with John Travolta singing and dancing. And it was it was awesome. And, uh, you know, I spotted the, the green shirt extra that... Uh, that we yes <laughs> that we love to point the out the guy that just went for it every every scene that he was yeah. in he knew it was a shot yeah, it was a lot of fun i guess i just i just feel like it's my duty to call out this this next step on the evolution of my relationship with that movie since uh, it's been documented thoroughly throughout the the lifespan of this podcast i appreciate yeah. that so it's, it's not just a plug and uh, a plug for greece the kind of movie that i guess uh wears you out and eventually just teaches you to love it it's a battle of attrition <laughs> yeah. no i think that actually you need somebody like you and like my wife to constantly point out to you the things that are good about it so that you can get past whatever bothers you uh but also just uh i guess the real plug is for for drive-ins which i think are a great alternative right now i know that i hope they make it yeah comeback. i know there are a lot of people they're just uh, we we're talking about this before we start recording just people that are just going insane at home and i'm not one of them uh, but I completely understand there are people that are a lot more extroverted than me and that just need to get out. Uh, and I think the drive-ins are a good option. And they seem to be acknowledging that they're, this is a good time for them because uh, it feels to me like they're trying to diversify the movies that they play as much as possible. Uh, so it was fun. It was it was just it was a good time. What Julio left out was his car broke down when he was there and he called me. And I said, what's up? And he said, stranded at the drive-in. <laughs> <laughs> labeled a fool <laughs> alright so that concludes Edward Scissorhands which one's next is it Homefront no next is our, our uh, July bonus episode and that would be The Crucible okay. do you know anything no I know nothing about The Crucible Daniel Day-Lewis uh, winner our writer and Joan Allen Joan Allen making her triumphant return to The Contrarians 68% on Rotten Tomatoes so we'll see yeah 
All right. Well, Daniel Day-Lewis making his Contrarian's debut coming up. That's going to be a, a hell of a feat or a hell of a milestone, I should yep. say. But for now, that does do it for Edward Scissorhands, and that does do it for the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. I'm all out of ideas.